VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, April the 12th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He is the producer of the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a call, get in the queue, and on the air, the topic is up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, it looks like a pretty reasonable day on tap here in the St. John's area, and good luck to everyone chasing the provincial title in the first wave of minor hockey provincials. They wrap up today, and then the next group, which I think is Adams and Bantams, or U11s and U15s, they begin uh, tomorrow. So good luck to all hands and safe travels as you return to your hometown. Okay, it was on this date in 1980 began the Marathon of Hope. Terry Fox dipped his right leg into the harbor here in St. John's, filled up two large bottles with ocean water, one he was going to keep as a souvenir, one he was going to pour to the Pacific Ocean when he reached Victoria, B.C., but of course we know he didn't. So the first few days of the Marathon of Hope, the weather was just brutal. But when Terry Fox and his uh, fellow Doug Aylward, I think was his name, that accompanied Terry, when they made their way to Channel Port of Basque, the residents showed up in droves and made a $10,000 donation to Terry Fox. I think over the entirety of the run, he raised some $1.7 million and a lot of awareness. And all these decades later, the Terry Fox Foundation still in, uh, still in action. And we can talk about fundraising efforts and the like, especially when we talk about cancer care. But the Marathon of Hope, so on September the 1st, just outside of Thunder Bay, Terry Fox had a massive coughing fit. It was later found out that the cancer had returned and made its way into his lungs and metastasized, and that was it for the Terry Fox run. There wasn't, uh, it wasn't so many years ago when Canadians were polled about the greatest Canadian of all time, and some of the notables hit the list, but Terry Fox was at the top, and the Marathon of Hope began today, the 12th of April, 1980. Sticking with Ontario... Going to see the Blue Jays back at Rogers Center and get our first look at the renovations or phase one of the renovations at the Rogers Center. Jays look stout. Uh, 9-3 victory over Detroit, pushing the record to 7-4. and four. And curiously, it took professional athletes a long time to figure out how to protect their face and protect their head. And uh, this date in 1877 was the first time a catcher's mask was worn. Just imagine how many baseballs made their way into the teeth or the face and the eyes of catchers who squat behind the plate and took the beating until 1877. All right, this is an interesting one, because there's lots of stories in the news, and maybe you're a space watcher or a, scar- a stargazer, but now that the plans are for Artemis III to bring man back to the moon for the first time in decades, it was today in history, 62 years ago, in 1961, that uh, Soviet astronaut Yuri Gagarin became the first human to travel into outer space, orbiting the Earth aboard the Vostok 1. So there were some 20 astronauts being considered, or pardon me, cosmonauts being considered. He was only a little tyke. He was five foot two, and the capsule was really quite small, so I'm sure that played a role. And he became an international celebrity. He uh, received the Hero of the Soviet Union, the nation's highest honor. Given his popularity, President Kennedy would not allow Gagarin to come to the United States because the space race was on, and of course, during the Cold War. So he actually died some 15 years later, uh, no, seven years later, when his MiG-15 crashed in a test flight. So Gagarin, 62 years ago, first human to travel into outer space and stick with space for just one moment. It was today in 1981, so 42 years ago, the first space shuttle blasted off in a successful test flight, and of course that was the space shuttle Columbia. All right, 
I want to give you a heads up about an opportunity talking about protecting our privacy. So it's not just for seniors, it's everybody, certainly our, our youth, the digital worries and woes and evils are lurking around every corner. If you're interested in getting some tips about how to safely surf the internet, the St. John's Retired Citizens Association is hosting uh, this particular forum tonight at 7 p.m. at 10 Bennett Avenue. It's open to the public, so if you'd like to get some more tips, or maybe you just want to come and get some tips so that you can convey them to the folks in your social circles or in your family because we know and we've heard the stories about the scams on the telephone and on the internet. They're absolutely relentless. So there's that opportunity for you tonight, 7 p.m., 10 Bennett Road. And stick with privacy. We know that Michael Harvey, the province's privacy and information commissioner, he stepped down from the investigation into the cyber attack. And he said he, you know, he didn't think that there was any actual inherent bias, even though the government thought there might be, given the fact he was a deputy minister of health and he spent a couple of years on the board of the Health Information Group. That is, that's the responsibility. But now he's brought some uh, recommendations forward against the town of port port East, saying that they failed to comply with the regulations to respond to one particular complainant and his five access or their five access requests to the town. So municipal entities, provincial government, it's 20 business days. So if you don't hit the timeline, it basically equates to refusal of access. So he's brought that forward, and if you want to talk about getting some information from the municipalities, from the provincial government, from the federal government, because that is a massive topic of conversation, we'll take it on. But the Privacy Commission has brought forward those concerns and recommendations against the town of Port of Port East. Stick with that region. You know, for a while, it was the headline grabber. Some of the protests and the pushback and the negative reaction from the folks in the Port of Port Peninsula surrounding John Risley's plan with World Energy GH2 for his 164 wind turbines in phase number one, the hydrogen plant and the ammonia plant and the export market that they say they have in Germany. Haven't heard much about it lately. So if you're in that region, you're on side as a proponent, a supporter, or opposed to, let's keep it back on the front burner here. It'd also be curious to know where we are in the process for whether it's a green light, which many people think it will be green lit here. I'm not so sure that World Energy GH2 is ready right away to begin the process beyond just the establishment of the, that one meteorological tower to get the data for said operations. But it'd be curious to know where we are. Also, for the folks in mainland, what's the water concern? Does it continue to be the issue that it was a few weeks ago? When we spoke to folks in the area, and they would be posting pictures of the discolored water. The province says they've done as many as four water quality tests, and the water has passed each time. John Risley's group has offered to bring in independent outside experts to look at that water supply and what could or should be done and what the cause of this most recent concern would be. So if you're in the region, let's do it. Oh, 12th of April. I hadn't considered this. It just popped in my head. So I believe today is the day where this historic insolvency issue will be settled in courts. And this is what we've been told is the last remaining hurdle for Carl Diamond and the Diamond Group of Companies to move forward with their announced plans for the Stephenville Airport. Most people in the province, I think, are very skeptical that this is ever going to come to pass. There's been lots of stories about Mr. Diamond, his business background, whether or not he has the resources for the hundreds of millions of dollars that were pledged. So I guess we'll find out in short order because we've been told repeatedly that this was the last issue that had to be addressed and dealt with before there was any further progress. So 
I guess the end story here will be told very, very quickly. And if you want to chime in on that, because, you know, talk about if this really happened and the World Energy GH2 issue happened, and there's lots of concerns with water royalties and all the rest, so we can take it on from any angle. But if there was all those jobs that were pledged, and I don't know if any of this is going to come to pass, there's no provincial government money in it. The Stephenville Council did go ahead and I think it was another $50,000 to the airport to continue operations. Uh, all in favor, except for one councillor, uh, Councillor Tiller. So we'll see very, very quickly if there's anything to this. If it ever did happen, it would obviously be the quote-unquote game-changer for the area. Anyways, keep going with some of the trades issues. So the Terranova FPSO is back out of bull arm for more work to be done. There's some questions surrounding the quality and the caliber of work that was done on the FPSO in Spain, but it is in bull arm. No timeline for when they're going to resume production out on the site. But let's not forget that there was a $505 million lifeline afforded to the operation so that they would get back to work. And that, of course, included, remember that pot of money from the federal government for the oil and gas companies? None of it for the employees, none of it for the workers, which I always thought was a massive problem here with the creation of that pot of cash. It was something like $320 million inside that envelope. So $205 million of cash for the operator. And then it also came with a massive royalty adjustment valued in and around $300 million for context. Over the next decade of lifespan of that particular project, the royalties flowing to the province and provincial coffers would only be somewhere in the neighborhood of $35 million. So the province has put forward a very generous plan for the companies involved at the Terranova FPSO. So we'll see how quick they can get back out there. And hopefully, for, especially for the folks who are working in the industry and working on that particular project, they are waiting with bated breath to see what's going to happen. So we'll take it on. Also, would be interesting to know, and we're not going to get much information from Equinor. Of course, the company and the proponent behind the Beta Nord project. There's been lots of different concerns voiced, especially by tradespeople and the umbrella organization that is TradesNL, about where the province prioritizes whether, okay, if Equinor gives the final business sanction and they say only the best projects will proceed, their break-even was about $35 a barrel and we're well in excess of that. So I don't know what the status of that decision-making is. But once again, I'll pose the question to you. Is the province's priority or should the province's priority be on jobs? And as much work to be done here should be done here. Equinor, if you read between the lines, is saying that a lot of the topside's work, if not all of the topside's work, will be done elsewhere. And then they go on to say that there's maybe doubling the subsea effort and maybe more financial benefit to the province. But jobs, of course, are important. And investment in R&D and their presence in that community is, of course, part and parcel of this conversation. Or is the enhanced royalty a better idea? Sometimes, you know, I guess it depends on where you stand. Money in people's pocket that they earn and the job and to keep the momentum going here and be prepared for projects in the future is absolutely important. Because when the money simply flows to the province, then we have the whole political concern about just how the governments, regardless of Stripe, how they deal with the money, how they spend the money, how they subsidize the industry, whether it be with some $50 million worth of money that ExxonMobil, for instance, will not have to pay, and that's all deferral issues based on CNLOPB and some of the deposits made in the land sale issue. But where do you think the priority should be? And, of course, there is a massive sticking point that is the first time it's been part of an oil uh, project or potential for an oil project 
is the whole who's going to pay the hundreds of millions of dollars to the United Nations based on that Article 82 laws of the sea. Given the proximity of that oil field, the furthest offshore that any development has been considered, and with all those monies that would be paid to developing countries. So the country, Canada, signed on to it. The province didn't sign on to it. So the argument being made here by provincial politicians is that the federal government should pay that money. And, of course, they think that's petty, and we should be involved in paying the money, because I guarantee you one entity that won't be paying that money, or certainly will be negotiating to be uh, left out of that conversation, is Equinor themselves. So where do you think the priorities should be on that particular issue. How are we doing out there, Dave? Okay. Moving, well, sticking with water, I suppose. So a lot of discussion and a lot of frustration being voiced over the price of snow crab. Now, even if you're not in the industry, have no relationship to it, you're not on the boat, you're not in a plant, but you might be working in a community that has a significant presence of fish harvesters because it's not just the money they make. It's the ripple effect throughout the community, you know, for all the supplies required and what have you. So at 2.20, we've been told quite vociferously that that is not a viable number, and many harvesters, the fisheries opened as of Monday, and they're not out there yet. So Greg Purdy at the FFAW says this is an economic bombshell. Now remember, last year's landed value was somewhere in between $750 and $800 million, so extreme amount of money. And this year at 2.20, compared to last year at the beginning of the season at $8, of course, that shock to the system for the harvesters is obviously very real. All the input costs have continued to rise for them, like the rest of us and everything we touch and see and feel. So they're not going at it. There is a dollop of politics being played here. You know, I don't know how you factor in costs for harvesters when you set a price. Now, the price-setting panel concept and process may be deeply flawed. Many people think it is. But how do you factor in what the fish harvesters need? Because the price you would imagine, like pricing just about anything, it would be based on what the market is willing to pay. Now, there's a long way between 220 and what we'll eventually pay at a grocery store if you want to go buy some crab, and the market might be struggling somewhat, and we know they didn't even sell all the crab that was caught last year. So where does anyone go on this front? We'll find out a lot more about the market in the very near future because some of the crab that's been caught elsewhere by other provinces is going to find its way into the States which is the main market. You know, people will point to Russian crab and Japan and all those types of things, but the major market is the United States. So the argument will either be bolstered on behalf of the harvesters or the Seafood Producers Association very soon because we'll see what they're willing to pay and how much they're willing to buy. You know, even last year, the price did come back to earth a little bit. I think the last going off price was $6.15 per pound. Again, a far cry from the two twenty that's been landed on. So this does have a massive implication. It just simply does. Now, what's the break-even number or the profitable number in the price per pound? I guess that's up to individual harvesters to make their own determination. And they're also encouraging folks that if they do go for the crab, is to buy it at the wharf. If you're a harvester, help us understand exactly how that works. I know it's as simple as I have money in my pocket, I go to the small boat basin here in St. John's, and I ask the lads or whoever's uh, catching the crab, I'd like to buy some crab. And I guess you negotiate a price per pound. But what's the financial implications? Is there anything, any other working, moving part there that makes it possibly really attractive or maybe an exaggerated attraction? I know that's being promoted, and fair enough, because guarantee you, if you are 
in the mood for and you have an appetite for crab, if you buy it from the wharf, you're probably going to pay far less than you eventually would at a grocery store or some retail outlet because it goes through a lot of hands. And, of course, you cannot buy crab, even for what the harvesters got last year at 8 bucks. So you want to take that on, harvester or otherwise, because this is an actual massive issue. Last one before we get to your calls. And this is about uh, the now former president and vice chancellor at Memorial University. So the Faculty Association is asking the governing body, the Board of Regents, for more information. The Board of Regents is not doing any interviews, which I think is a problem. Because these are legitimate questions that people need answers to, especially the university community. So whether it be about how and why Vianne Timmons was hired in the first place, and what role did the issues surrounding her identity or heritage, indigenous speaking, uh, what role did that play in her eventual hiring? And then what was exactly the straw or why was she eventually dismissed or her contract terminated? They go on to say, and I think this is fair, is to talk about the process for how the university searches for their next president. We know Dr. Neil Bowes has taken over as the president on a two-year contract or until a new president can be found. It cost the university about $150,000 last go-around when hiring Vianne Timmons. You know, most of that for professional services, the so-called executive headhunters and whatnot. So if you're a member of the university community or not and would like to get in on that, because a lot of the focus has simply been on exactly how much we pay. So Vianne Timmons, her base salary of $450,000 was 4% more than her predecessor, Gary Kachanowski. So what's the appropriate level of pay? I don't know. And people are quite cross when I bring this up, but so be it. It's just for uh, provoking conversation. Let's just say that they decide that 450 is far too generous, and the housing allowance and vehicle allowance and other perks are far too generous, and they roll them back to whatever level. Does that change how the university operates? Or is that a feel-good for folks who are really, you know, looking at their own bank account, looking at the till at the grocery store and thinking, man, everything's out of hand. My, my wages aren't rising with inflation. I'm feeling the pinch. And yet we have people in these powers of authority at public entities making huge money. So I don't know what the dollar amount will be, but does that even change how Memorial is run, the governance structure, the tuition, the fees? its reputation, the co-ops, or anything under the sun? Or is it simply a feel-good for folks who are not happy when we see those, and they are, whopping big contracts? No doubt about it. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone and give us a shout. Get in the queue just like you're going to do during this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. We'll start off with a little feel-good here this morning. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Marilyn. You're on the air. Is it? It's Marlene. Oh, Marlene. My apologies, Marlene. Welcome to the show. That's okay. I just didn't know whether to speak or not. Happy hump day. Yeah, the same to you. We have a glorious, sunshiny day to um, send Shirley Murphy at Tim Hortons on Rope Walk Lane off to retirement. Uh, she's been with us for 25 years, almost 26. She started in 1997, and uh, she's finally going to take that time for herself. So we'd like to wish her well, and I know that I wanted to get it on here because she has so many customers on Rope Walk Lane at that front counter and uh, knows everybody so well. 
that she's going to be a face that's missed for sure. That's a long run, a great shift to put in in any capacity. But in that industry, and anyone who's ever worked in it, it's not as simple as simply taking orders and filling the orders and dealing with the public because any job dealing with the public can be quite difficult sometimes. A hundred percent. And I mean, if you know Shirley and you're one of her regulars and you know that um, she is always putting a little love into every cup of coffee that she sends over that counter. Um, she's going to, she's really, she's been a staple at the front counter uh, at Roadblock Lane. Um, Anthony Germain, I think, did a thing on her one time many years ago, and uh, she really will be a face that we'll miss And hopefully she'll come back and do uh, camp day with us, maybe. And I'm sure, Shirley, like uh, anyone who's been a long-standing employee and gets to know their customers, you see the face, you know that it's a duchy and a double, a large double-double coming. A hundred percent, and a hundred percent any of those customers that hear this today, I really I encourage you to go up there and have a, have a last hug from behind the counter she's there till probably around i'm going to say two o'clock this afternoon and uh then you'll only see her on in the front of the counter so i just said a duchy is that even on the menu anymore duchy is gone the duchy is gone i used to like the duchy yeah. so, so the four original donuts that was one of the four originals that tim had um they were for his four daughters actually interesting. and uh yeah they took that one off the menu a, a while ago bring back the duchy i'm starting the campaign <laughs> So they're bring, you know what they're bringing back some old traditional stuff I hear and uh, including I'm hopeful for my favorite was the walnut crunch. Here, here, we're thinking very much like this morning, Marlene. So for Shirley, of course, not only interaction with customers, but when you have a veteran of 25, 26 years, she must have played a pretty important role for the new hires because we do know there's a bit of a turnstile at restaurants like Tim Hortons or other you know the McDonald's, Burger Kings, A and W's of the world. So what does she meant to the new employees? She has a lot, made a lot of friendships up there over the years, and uh, you know, it's to have that staple of a person who has such exemplary customer service. Like she's like exceptional, yeah, by what she does, and obviously she stuck it out for that long. Um, so she's really um, given a lot to the people that are coming to show them what it is to, to give customer service. So, Marlene, are you the franchisee? I am. Yeah. That is one busy shop. That is one busy shop, and uh, it's but it's our flagship, and um, yeah, we love Robock Lane and the staff that are there, and we have quite a few actually that are there that have been there for a lot of years. Well, I appreciate the time this morning, Marlene. Pass along our very best wishes to Shirley on our behalf. Thank you so much, Patty. Have a good day. You too. All the best. Bye bye. I mean, putting in a twenty-six year shift in that business is. <laughs> That's stick to as what they say. Let's go to line number four. Terry, you're on the air. Hello. Hello, Terry. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Thank you for uh, allowing me on air, Patty, uh, this morning. By to talk about the, the issue of the fishery. <laughs> uh, what I want to talk to you about this morning is uh, directly, it's about the shrimp fishery, Patty. Um, as you know, because of the, the crab detail regarding crab prices, the uh, Shrimp harvesters are trying to get DFO once again, like the last couple of springs, to open the shrimp fishery and issue our license conditions so that while we're waiting for this uh, crab dispute to take its course, we can at least go out and catch some shrimp. And uh, <clears throat> uh, FFAW has put in a request last week to DFO to get it opened. 
CNL put in a request as well last week to DFO to get it open. Uh, not only have they not opened it yet, given uh, not only have they not given an opening date or issued license conditions, but they haven't even acknowledged to FFAW or to CNL that they even received their email, uh, which is to me a total disrespect. Uh, for those two organizations, uh, and a total show of callousness and uh, and misuse of authority by Fish- Federal Fisheries Notions. When would shrimp normally open, Terry? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, normally uh, we would have to go back to pre-pandemic. Uh, pre-pandemic, the shrimp fishery always opened in Area Six. Uh, which is fishery off southern Labrador and northeastern Newfoundland, the island Newfoundland, uh, traditionally always open uh, in May. In some years, it even opened in April. But uh, the last two or three years, for various reasons, we, we, it's been a battle, a, a constant battle with DFO to get the shrimp fishery open. Uh, and... Uh, this year now, we've got normally this year, I mean, only for this crab dispute, the boats would be at crab now. Three L boats would be, three K boats would be it, because ours don't open until this Friday. But some of them would be left to sail out now to Area 4. Uh, but because of the dispute, I mean, now, I mean, I know not everybody got a shrimp license, but boats that do have shrimp licenses can at least go out and get a trip or two of shrimp in now. This is the optimal time of year for shrimp. Uh, this is the time when the buyers want it. They say it gives them the best quality shrimp, the highest yield. Uh, two shrimp plants are already ready to buy, or will be by Friday. Uh, and there's more getting ready. Uh, there, This is the highest catch rate time of year for shrimp. I mean, it'll be fantastic catch rates this time of year, which, which bodes good for future quota increases, if any. Uh, so, and there's no crab gear on the grounds, uh, you know, to, to interfere. Or, I mean, because you can't drag shrimp when there's a lot of crab gear around because for, for obvious gear. reasons. What would this time of year be so different regarding maybe starting in two weeks or three weeks from now regarding catch rates? What's the difference? I'm sorry, could you say that again? So if you, if the shrimp fishery didn't open for two weeks, three weeks, what would be the difference in catch rates? Like what's, what makes now optimal? Well, there, there, there wouldn't be any difference in catch rates in two to three weeks from now. Okay. Uh, usually, catch rates don't usually drop off till come June month. Uh, but the difference is, two to three weeks from now, there, uh, there might be a crab fishery, and the grounds will be covered with crab pots. Okay, uh, so that that's fair enough uh, regarding that particular species. But inside the whole price setting issue, whether it be for any type of shellfish or any ground fish. So shrimp and now the snow crab business. I'm interested in your take on how the issue is being presented. Because, of course, like if you listen to Greg Pretty at the FAW, he says it's an economic bombshell. We've heard from crab harvesters. They're not going at it for 220 a pound. I don't know what the right number is for them or whether the 310, I think, was a proposal from the union. But, you know, when the conversation says, well, the price setting panel didn't factor in just how much it costs to go fishing crab. 
How can you factor that in when isn't the price more reflective of what the market will pay, what the market can bear, versus what it costs to go at it? Uh, <clears throat> I, I would assume so. I mean, I think the, the price historically has been a reflection of the market rather than the expense of catching it. Now, I know each, each individual enterprise has got to look at their expense versus their 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 revenue intake, you know. But, but on the pricing issue, and they're going through the same exercise with shrimp in there now as we speak this week. Uh, the, I mean, the problem, I mean, the... The problem in this whole system is the final offer selection process is no good. It's not working. It's broken. The intent of it was probably good when it was created a few years ago, but it's not working. There's no negotiating anymore, Patty. When they go in now to do crab, uh, the parties, SSAW and ASP, they don't negotiate anymore. There's no such thing as, well, we want to get paid $4, and the buyer's saying we're going to pay 2 and then they say, Oh, well, I'll book three and 250. Well, I'll book, you know, uh, and you narrow the gap, and you narrow the gap, and you narrow the gap, and you negotiate. And so that then when it goes to the panel, the gap is narrowed enough that no matter what side the panel picks, it'll result in a fish rate. But that doesn't happen anymore. They don't negotiate anymore, and which, which results in a, a very wide gap that creates no fish rate. It happened with crabs the, this year. It happened with shrimp last year. And I bet my bottom dollar is going to happen with shrimp again this week. That uh, uh, the system is, is, is not working. We've got to come up with something better. I don't know what that better is, but I'm sure there's brains somewhere in the province that can figure out something, anything is better than this final offer selection. Yeah, and I don't know what the solution would be. You know, some harvesters will tell you, and of course, there's got to be some efforts to protect both sides, the harvesters and the processors. They are both parts of the industry. But if there was, for instance, like a, a they auction off the tuna in Japan, they get best price because it's competitive. So if you had buyers representing OCI and the Daily Brothers and others and other countries and their representatives on the wharf, that would be the best and the optimal situation for harvesters, but it could decimate the local uh, producers. So I'm sure we're never going to see that level of competition at the wharf, but you know, like unlike many other industries, raw material gets maximum dollar. Uh, appreciate the time, Terry. Anything else before we say goodbye? No, uh, that's, that's it. I've had my two cents worth, and thank you again for allowing me on. Appreciate the time, Terry. Take care. You too. Okay, bye. bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Many of you might find some interest in this particular call. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the leader of the Communist Party of Canada. That's Liz Rowley. Good morning, Liz. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing very well, thanks. I'm in Newfoundland. Yes, welcome <laughs> to the province. Uh, and I know, I don't know much about you, to be honest, but I do know that you've been part of the uh, central executive of the Communist Party of Canada since the late 70s. You've assumed the role as leader, I think it was in 2016. But there was also an interesting part of your past. When the dissolution of the Soviet Union took place, you were one of the first people expelled from the party by the general secretary, I believe his name was Hewison at the time. Recount that before we move on to, to uh, today's issues. Well, sure. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. It was a small group in the leadership of the party at that time that decided that they weren't communists and wanted to leave the party. Um, and, of course, they're entitled to do that. The problem was they weren't entitled to take our 
uh, you know, bank account and assets with them. So there was quite a struggle in the party to prevent them from doing that. It was finally resolved, and here we are, <laughs> bigger and better than before. This may be a very fundamentally, maybe even oddball question, but we've heard all of the isms of the world thrown around fairly carefree over the last number of years. The socialism, communism, Marxism, Leninism, all of the rest of them, they get couched in and sometimes they're simply uh, declaring that if I don't like something, it's communism. What's communism? I would say that communism really, at the, you know, in its simplest form, is uh, the, the uh, working people are in the driver's seat uh, in the country where socialism exists. So that's certainly the case in Cuba, for example, and that's certainly uh, what I would aspire to see in Canada. So instead of multinational corporations making the decisions, it's working people who should make the decisions. And a lot of government troll for the end production uh, issue. So... Inside of that world and that word, it, pe people's mind's eye goes directly to, you know, tyrannical governments and Soviet style and the Chinese Communist Party and that type of control that takes away my ability to thrive if I have the drive, the energy, the smarts and the know-how, as opposed to a classless society, which is very much counterintuitive to a social democracy with capitalism at its core, or at least a part of its core. So how can what you aspire to in your political ideology jive with what Canadians understand as to be the country they grew up in and the, the type of economy that we have. Not to say that late capitalism is perfect, I wouldn't be so foolish to say so, but how does your ideology jive with what Canadians think of how we live and how we want to live? Well, I think, you know, there's a, a recent poll that was referred to by the Fraser Institute, hardly a friend of working people in this country, uh, that showed that more than 50% of uh, uh, of those polled in Canada uh, had a favorable attitude towards socialism. Uh, and I think most of those people, like me, would uh, place um, uh, you know, high value on democracy. And uh, so I think a lot of the uh, a lot of people in Canada are interested in socialism and don't buy the McCarthyite. Uh, interpretation of, uh, of what is currently happening, for example, with CSIS trying to uh, suggest that there is foreign interference in Canadian elections. This is a, an effort to help the Conservatives knock out the Liberals. And while the Liberals are no friends of uh, working people, the Tories sure as hell aren't. And uh, it's, a, a, you know, against the law, actually, for CSIS or the RCMP to be involved in politics. And they surely are. And there's nothing uh, democratic about that at all, as uh, most Canadians would, would, would say. Sure. And, I mean, the process to get to the bottom of that is unfolding at a snail's pace, whether it be through their special repertoire. We'll hear from Katie Telford on Friday. And I think Canadians just want to know the truth, uh, as opposed to if people just want to further their own political leanings, and so be it. But I think most Canadians just simply want to know what's going on and the actual truth here. So in support of working people, and you talk about rolling back prices and getting a handle on cost of living in comparison to what we've seen different provincial governments and the federal government attempt to put some controls in and attempt to put more money in people's pocket. What exactly are you talking about with attacking the cost of living issue? Well, we, we, what we see is the cost of, is the uh, cause of inflation, uh, which is one of the biggest um, uh, ways that working people's wages are, 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 are falling. And wages fell 3% last year. Uh, the uh, uh, Tiff Macklin, the government of the Bank of Canada, 
says that it's workers, uh, greedy workers and their unions that are responsible for inflation um, because they are demanding higher wages and striking for it and so forth for cost of living allowances. But uh, that's just nonsense. Workers and their unions are, uh, are, are fighting back, trying to hold on to their wages in response to skyrocketing prices and skyrocketing profits by multinational corporations. And we can certainly see that situation with the uh, grocery stores. Everybody knows they're getting hosed when they go get their groceries. And uh, the situation is so bad that a parliamentary subcommittee was convened in March uh, the 8th, I think it was, uh, to... Uh, to ask the CEOs of uh, Laplace, Metro, and Empire Foods, which owns Sobeys, how do they explain uh, the fact that, uh, you know, the connection between their high prices and their enormous profits? And how big are the profits? Well, Gale and Weston made profits of excess profits of a billion dollars a day every day of the year last year. And, you know, these these, uh, others are not far behind. And Galen Weston's answer <laughs> to the subcommittee was, well, it's not that much, you know. And so uh, most people who saw that said, what planet is he living on? And they know they're getting hosed. Uh, the banks made $57 billion last year. They're now setting aside $2.5 billion uh, in expectation of mortgage defaults because of the uh, eight increases in the interest rates by the Bank of Canada in 11 months. And the, Mr. Backlund has said that they're not finished yet. Yeah, so, I don't think that issue is unique to this country. And I think economies, the developed economies no, true. in the G7, G20 are struggling with very similar overlapping issues. So, you know... That's that's quite so. But that doesn't mean that, that uh, you know, people in those countries are also facing uh, transnational corporations that are making enormous profits on their backs. So we have common interests here in uh, you know, fighting with working people around the world to stop this. You know, very similar to I don't know who should be the arbiter of what is true or not. Because, you know, things like Bill 11 or what have you, which I think gets an exaggerated pushback. But who gets to be the arbiter of what constitutes acceptable or excessive profits? That That's something that I don't think anyone's been able to really articulate to, to me to get a firm understanding of what they think is next. But as much as we are beholden, to the banks and major and massive corporations. There's also a distinct fear in this country and many developed nations that we don't want to be beholden and absolutely reliant on the government. Because as much as people don't trust some big companies, there's certainly a growing mistrust or distrust of government. And, you know, you can talk about removing class from the system and being for working people, but relying on the faith, the accuracy, the integrity, or the honesty of a government is something that I think everyday people struggle with. Well, I think they're not wrong to do that. (laughs) The problem is it's not government. The problem is who's in the government and who do they speak for? And it's very clear that the Conservatives and the Liberals both speak for these very large corporations. Look, in the case of the grocery stores, for example, the, the, three, the three companies that were, I won't say grilled because they were hardly grilled, but who were in, uh, you know, on, the, on Parliament Hill in March, all three of them were involved in the bread price-fixing scheme uh, five years ago. Loblaws turned in the other two in exchange for immunity from prosecution. But where's the prosecution of the other two? There's never been a prosecution, and my guess is there never will, because this government is unwilling to do that. 
You know, the government does have the power to uh, roll back prices on food, fuel, and rent. They've done it before. Most they did it during the war. They've done it most recently in 1976. And they should do it now. People are really hurting. They're losing their homes. They're losing their, they're being evicted. They're living on the streets. Pensioners are having to decide between, you know, food and meds, food and rent. Uh, people on fixed incomes in the same situation. Working people seeing their their savings uh, evaporate. That's what governments are for, to protect uh, consumers, aren't they? I mean, most consumers would think so. But of course, and it's hardly so, hardly socialism to to propose you know protection of consumers. But not all consumers are created equal. I mean, some people are struggling mightily. Some people are struggling somewhat. Some people are doing okay, and some people are thriving, which is why a one catch all uh, silver bullet, so to speak, has long been the thought of folks with the political leanings like that you were sharing here this morning, Liz. But of course, that that doesn't work for all. You know. There is an argument to be made for how you target support because, like, for instance, something just broad stroke off the top of my head, free tuition at university, can be argued that it's a gift to the rich. So for folks who are struggling mightily, they need a certain level of help. Folks who are struggling somewhat need a different level of support because if we pretend that simply rolling back a price is settles the solution once and for all, we kind of miss root cause and we miss what the future might look yeah. like when the economy improves and those types of things. Our very last well, word, Liz, I, before I, I have to go. Sure. Well, I'm not suggesting it's uh, the uh, you know the solution to everything, but it's certainly the solution to the the crisis that most people most people are for, who work for a living or who are unemployed or who are lived on fixed income, which is more than 90 percent of the population. It would sure help them, and that the government ought to do it. With respect to education, you know, if we wanted to place the question on the basis of who can afford to pay, well, maybe we should start start charging. Uh, families when their kids go into grade one, you know, because there's some that have quite a lot of money, but most don't. And we've decided a long time ago that education is a right, just like Medicare is a right, healthcare and other things. So what we're calling for here is that the government should take action to protect consumers, which it was elected to do. They may not want to do it, and that's why we think that the big issue here. Is or the big requirement here is for the public to get active, and uh, for a coalition to be built of, you know, labor, people's movements, the women's movements, farmers, uh, fishers, <laughs> youth organizations, indigenous people, that can that can uh, compel this minority government to act in the interest of working people. Appreciate the time, Liz. Thank you. Welcome to the province. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye. So this is Rowley, leader of the Communist Party of Canada. You want to react to that? You know what to do. Very quickly before we get to the break, let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Hi. Uh, I picked up, I was down by Manuel's Bridge there yesterday by the post office there, uh, by the hardware store there, right? And I picked up a set of keys here, and there's a, there's a bunch of them here. I, I really like to know, you know, if anybody lost them, would they call, right? Sure. So uh, give us the where, the when's, and what you found. I'm sorry. As a, a set of keys. Yeah. And there's a, a bunch of keys here, right? And uh, I, bought, I found them down by Manuel's uh, post office there. Okay. Uh, by the Harewood store over there, right? And uh, I didn't know what to do, so I said, I'll give you a call this morning. I didn't know, right? 
Well, I'm glad you called, and certainly someone is uh, scrambling around the house and the car looking for their lost keys that they dropped somewhere around the manual's uh, shop there that you described. So if they call us, we'll get them in touch with you. How's that? Okay, then, and, uh, and uh, the gentleman, I gave him my phone number there, right? Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Okay, right. bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, researcher Stephen Cook is in the queue. He's with the Cognitive Aging and Auditory Neuroscience Lab at Memorial University. They're looking for participants in a new study. Stephen will tell us about it right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Stephen Cook. You're on the air. Hey, how are you, Patty? Excellent today. How are you doing? Oh, not bad at all. I just uh, I figured I'd give you guys a call and uh, do a little bit of a give you guys a little bit of a uh, uh, input on. Um, the uh, research that my uh, my uh, lab is doing. What are you working on? Uh, the Cognitive Aging Auditory Neuroscience Lab. There, at, uh, it's in the Faculty of Medicine at uh, at Mun. We do a lot of research. All of our research is based around hearing, uh, any sort of auditory processing, and things like that. Um, the project we're talk, talking to you guys about today is uh, about hearing loss. So, um, I'm sure most of the time. When, uh, when you think about hearing loss or uh, you know anybody with hearing loss, they get it prescribed uh, a hearing aid or, or something to, of that degree. And a lot of people don't seem to wear them, and they say, oh, it doesn't really help them or things like that. And, um, well, and that comes down to a fundamental issue when, when it comes to hearing loss. There's a great deal of people that, that uh, suffer with um, what we call hidden hearing loss, um, and that results from – not an issue with the volume of hearing. A lot of people do suffer where you know things are quiet and they need uh, they need that that volume um, on an auditory level turned up. Um, but that's not really the issue for some people. Sometimes um, people, if you put them in a quiet room, you'll hear a lot of people like elder um, older adults and things like that say, "Well, if you're in a quiet room, it's no trouble to have a conversation. Uh, even if it's quiet, it's no trouble." Um, but in crowded spaces or if the radio's on, they can't really talk when the radio's on and things like that. Uh, and it's not really a volume issue. It's, it's that they have trouble hearing the two things at once. So it's kinda, it kind of gets jumbled up. Which I think is probably very common. Uh, before we go any further, what exactly is hidden hearing loss? So hidden hearing loss is, is called hidden hearing loss because at the moment um, there's no diagnostic tools to, to diagnose hidden hearing loss. Uh, it's hearing loss that we that currently – uh, we don't really have scientific know-how to be able to diagnose. We know some markers, um, some, some, some markers that we would say it, uh, gives us an idea that somebody might have that. And, but what it is, hidden hearing loss, is it's a volume issue. It's an issue. It's a comprehension issue. So uh, it's not the physical part of the ear that's, that's giving you the noise. That, that, that is, um, there's the issue. It's the encoding. It's what your brain does to decipher what noises are important, what isn't, what isn't important. Um, so that's kind of what hidden hearing loss is. What's the relationship with my hearing loss or my hidden hearing loss and any of my cognitive abilities? Well, uh, actually, the, the, any uh, hearing loss is actually a, believed to be a, pre, um, a preclinical marker for other neurodegenerative diseases and things that, like um, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's and things like that. So um, if anybody that has hearing loss, it is, it's believed that those people have uh, an increased likelihood of getting those types of diseases. Is hearing loss part of aging? 
naturally or normally? Because, you know, I guess we all go down to when you have older relatives, what have you, and you, you know that you might have to speak up, even if they're wearing a, uh, a device like a hearing aid or what have you. So is hearing loss at some extent a natural part of aging? Absolutely. The, gen- the hearing loss in general, the, the kind that everybody knows about, is absolutely it's you know it's part of your the degradation of of your ear and all those you know all those moving parts in your ear um it's a degradation of that sort of thing so of course yeah your hearing hearing definitely gets worse over time and that's uh that's been shown time and time again but that's the interesting thing here with hidden hearing loss there are no age confounds it's not it's not a uh degradation of the ear it's the you could say the wiring inside um, so there is no age cap on hidden hearing loss. So what would be compromised for the beginning of hearing loss? Is it the eardrum or the hammer and the anvil or the cochlear tube? Or what, what exactly goes first that causes us to lose our hearing? Uh, so it generally is. It's, it's definitely a combination of those things. Um, some people, you know, there's, there's people that you might hear of that get spurs on the bones in their ears, and that creates some sort of hearing loss. Um, it could be could be the wiring itself, could be, damage over time you know uh, just every just about every one of us likes to listen to our music a little too loud uh so of course that over the course of a lifetime will will contribute um make make all those moving parts a little less effective uh or the um or of course the neurons on the inside um a little less sensitive so who are you looking for to participate in the study what do they have to do so uh for this for this study um all it's just 45 minutes long uh, we're looking for anybody over the age of 18 because uh, anybody that has, you know, if anybody at, at all uh, could potentially have hidden hearing loss. And um, let me just, uh, the only other thing that you need to, um, only thing that, only other thing that you need is that English needs to be your first language and you have to have some degree of, we would prefer people with some degree of, of hearing difficulties, but actually we do want every, anybody, if you don't have any hearing difficulties at all, you are definitely still valuable uh, to the study. Uh, just uh, quickly on the English as your primary language. Um, yeah. So is that because of the, the language restrictions of the researchers or is there something specific about the language? So uh, that's, that's a fantastic question. So the reason why uh, we want English as a first language is because some of the tools that we use for um, most of the tools that we use for diagnosing any type of hearing issue or even uh, analyzing hearing capabilities are all in English. So people, anybody that, any, that's what, those are all the ones that we use. Um, so yeah, anybody that has English as a second language would by default do slightly worse. Uh, how about, a, very quickly, and I'll give out the contact information. If you're interested in participating in the study, you can call the lab at 709-864-6405, or you can send an email. It's a very simple uh, email address. It's C-A-A-N-CANLaboratory at gmail.com. Very quickly, Stephen, your message to the folks who live with the earbuds in. You can't go anywhere without seeing people with the white dangling buds or wearing the headphones and for prolonged amounts of time, you know, I guess it might boil down to the levels at which they listen to the music or their, uh, their read the books or whatever they listen to, but your message to folks with the pods or the, earbo- the uh, headphones. Uh, for those people that, that listen to their, their headphones a lot of the time, um, I would definitely just say make sure you, you actually pay attention to some of those warnings your phone, give you, your phone gives you. 
Um, the threshold for uh, damaging your ear is a lot lower than we all like to believe. So definitely might want to keep that uh, turned down a little bit more than you think. <laughs> Appreciate the time. So that contact information one more time, folks. You can call the lab directly at 709-864-6405. Appreciate the time. Anything else quickly, Stephen? Uh, no, we are looking forward to uh, getting you guys into the lab. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Take good care and good luck. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, Stephen Cook with the Cognitive Aging and Auditory Neuroscience Lab at Memorial University's Medical School. Time for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three, say good morning to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Excellent, thanks. How are you doing? I'm not doing too bad at all. Beautiful sunny day. You can't help but uh, feel good on a day like this. Fair enough. Uh, yep. Yeah. Um... Patty, uh, before I get to my subject, I just wanted to uh, offer my congratulations to uh, to a gentleman who uh, wouldn't be a stranger of yours because he certainly called into your show numerous times uh, in his role as uh, president of uh, the Postal Workers uh, Union here locally, and that's Craig Dyer. Yeah. And uh, Craig, of course, is a good Mount Pearl man, one of my constituents, and uh, he just received the Newfoundland and Labrador Soccer Association Volunteer of the Year. And uh, very well deserved, I might add. Craig is a tremendous community volunteer. He's the gold standard when it comes to volunteering. He's very well known, certainly, in Mount Pearl for his involvement with the Mount Pearl Soccer Association, in particular, as well as the Mount Pearl CLB. But he's one of those guys that if there's any type of initiative going on in the community and you needed someone to step up and get involved in a leadership role, he would be one of your go-to guys for sure. So congratulations, Craig. Very well-deserved. We're very proud of you, buddy. Uh, the volunteers make the world of minor sports and a variety of different facets of life go around. Without them, we'd be doomed. I believe Craig's also the president of Mount Pearl Soccer, and I not yeah. only know Craig as a caller to the show representing the postal workers, but I went to high school with Craig, so I've known him for a long time. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. Yep. And, of course, behind, uh, behind any uh, great volunteer... Uh, it, uh, you know, you have, uh, it only really works if you've got the support of your family. And I can say that Craig's uh, wife, Deb, uh, likewise, she's a tremendous community volunteer. And, uh, quite often, uh, you see them, uh, working in, working together in the volunteer community, um, and, uh, as a family, quite frankly. And, um, and Mount Pearl is very lucky to have them. So congratulations again. Here, here. Uh, yep. Craig, uh, Patty, uh, I, I just wanted to just briefly uh, bring up the topic, I guess, of uh, government employment contracts. Um, and this is something that I've raised certainly in the House of Assembly, um, you know, I guess post Muskrat Falls inquiry and so on, uh, because, you know, based on some of the things we heard, uh, it was certainly my view, and I don't think I was alone in that view, that there had to be some accountability for some of the things that uh, went on, uh, but instead of seeing what you know many people would view as accountability, we we've seen you know a lot of people just simply um, you know leaving the organization, I guess on their own terms, um, without cause, with big payouts. Um, now we've seen a situation, certainly with Memorial University, and I don't really know what went on there, so I'm not going to make any accusations. I only know what I read in the media, the same as you did, but. You know, at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, we have another situation where uh, 
the individual involved uh, gets a you know a big payout and walks away without cause, and maybe that was warranted. I, I don't know. Like I say, I don't know all the details, but the overall the, the point I want to make, and I guess this is something that a lot of people have raised with me and a concern that I share, and I still can't really get a, a total understanding and get to the bottom of it. I'd love for someone, uh, you know, with a strong uh, background in the HR, perhaps to be able to sort of fill us all in about how these contracts work. Because, I, you know, I know during the Muskrat Falls inquiry, as an example, when I questioned the minister on this whole concept of accountability and so on, and you were saying, you know, it would cost the government twice as much or three times as much money in court if you let somebody go with cause. It's cheaper just to let them go without cause and they move on and, and, and so on. But that's not an unrealistic that argument. To accountability. Yeah, sure, but that is really not an unrealistic argument. You know, because no. when you make an evaluation, whether it be as a government or a private corporation, they just do it based on the math. So if yep. you can get away with less by paying a severance versus what could be long, drawn-out legal affairs, and generally rulings in the fa- favor of the person that's been let go, then there is, a, I think, an evaluation that has to be done there. And I, it doesn't sit well with people, and I get it. You know, when Ed Martin walked away with millions, and when Vian Tim is going to walk away with somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars, people get rightfully frustrated. But I think that goes back to how we hire, the due diligence in hiring, clauses and contracts to protect the uh, taxpaying public. Those are things that make much more of an impact versus just the sole focus on $450,000. Can we get someone who is absolutely competent uh, and up to the task and has the background and the resume to run Memorial University <coughs> for $300,000 or whatever number people s- select? For sure. Because yep. the argument of, you know, you have to pay X to get the proper candidate I think we've kind of bad, been bamboozled by, and I think it starts with private corporations, and they say, well, the CEO makes that much money, but how can I pay them less? We need someone who, at the helm that, that has all the qualities required. You're not telling me that someone who's making $15 million, we can't get someone for $5 million who is absolutely up to the task. It's all really quite strange. We've been led down the garden path here, and I don't know what the proper number is, but I do know the whole concept of how we hire, who we hired, why we hired them, and how the contract is structured is massively important as opposed to the simple focus on how much correct and and history is i think history has proven um and we've learned a hard lesson uh from a historical point of view that having these so-called experts and these big salaries has not necessarily gotten us where we want to be in all cases um so yeah and and i agree with what you just said there patty i i guess more specifically and you did sort of mention it there is I'm wondering, you know, when it comes to crafting government contracts, employment contracts, whether it be core government or whether it be agencies, boards, commissions, and so on, um, you know, uh, I certainly think that we need to review how those contracts are structured. I mean, in my world, and, you know, maybe I'm just being, I guess I am being naive, and, and perhaps it's my generation as well, but, you know, the way it worked, certainly when I was growing up and the way I was taught was kind of, you know, you go into work, you, there's an expectation that you get paid and you're expected to do certain things. If you if you fulfill that obligation, your reward is you get a paycheck. If you do not fulfill that uh, obligation, then your boss has every right to say, we're going to part ways, see you later. Uh, you didn't live up to your end of the bargain. It was very simplistic. Now, maybe it's too simplistic based on today's standards. I don't know. But I would like to see a review of how we structure 
government contracts, certainly uh, employment contracts in the future to ensure that there are protections in place for the taxpayer and that if somebody, and this is an if, again, I'm not accusing anybody of anything because I don't know all the details of some of these specific ones, but if somebody has not lived up to their obligations that they signed on for, then it should be very simple to say, you didn't live up to that, we're letting you go with cause, see you later, have a nice day. It yeah. shouldn't be a case of having to pay out hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. Yeah, and not to say that that's oversimplified, but there are so many outside influences that people don't necessarily have control over that can make their commitments or pledges as they campaigned or got hired in the private sector un- unrealistic. So, I mean, it, good managers, informed voters, they should be able to recognize those outside influences and what that means for performance and living up to policy outcomes and all those things. But we don't do that either, do we? <laughs> you know, it's no, we uh, If we don't like you, well, we want you gone. And the whole bit about like recall legislation, for instance, by God, we'd have an election every week around here. Well, uh, I, I understand where you're coming from with that. But I mean, like, you know, again, when we talk about performance, that's another one, right? And we saw that example uh, in during Derek NL, you know, where, Clearly, in that particular case, you know, the sole focus really of Nelcor and, and, and the Hydro at the time was to keep the lights on. And that didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen is because they weren't doing basic maintenance. And as a result, we had people in the dark for a number of days. We had lots of all kinds of property damage. And we actually had a fatality in, in my district, actually, uh, that resulted from Derek NL. And at the end of the day, all the buyers got their big bonuses and the explanation given was we had a good safety record so i mean we have to do better i mean we really do and somebody within the human resources division uh, of the provincial government or whatever i think they need to really as we hire new people and craft contracts we had to be more cognizant of having clauses and so on in there that hold people accountable uh when they're not living up to the expectations that were set. Yeah, and, you know, again, sometimes the things we focus on are kind of giving you the cause to eye-roll sometimes. Dark and L, the largest focus came on then-Premier Dunderdale as to whether or not this was a crisis, as opposed to why the lights were out, <laughs> you know? Yep. So, anyway, Paul, I appreciate the time. Off yep. I go. No, I say, I say a lot of that, of course, is the politics as well, and that, unfortunately, that seems to creep into everything when it comes to government, but... Uh, Anyway, uh, nice talking to you, Patty. I just put it out there as food for thought that, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that work for government. There's a lot of high-paying positions, very important positions. And as you say, we need to make sure that we get the best people there. And we also need to make sure that when people are hired, that there is accountability for their actions. And, uh, and And that means if you are not living up to the expectations for which you were hired, and you have to be let go, right. then I don't think having uh, be, we need to get our mind around letting someone go for cause when warranted. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Look, there's nobody argues against we demand and we should be getting accountability. It's a real great buzzword on the campaign trail. When you're on the hustings and there's transparency and accountability, it's just a word or two words. But actually living up to it, different thing. Uh, when we come back, Paul's in the queue to talk about the ferry and the Strait of Belle Isle. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I'm talking about the uh, the uh, Straits of Belle Isle ferry from uh, St. Barb to Blanc and Blanc. Okay. For, uh, for your callers. 
and it's operated by the Woodward Group. They have a, uh, a site, a Labrador Marine. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. Yes, I am. Uh, so are you familiar with what it says? It, it tells you to check the 511 app for information or updates? Yeah, well, I think the, all the transportation update information comes through that, yeah, including okay. the Labrador Ferry. So, sir, is this a live update or...? I don't really know uh, how accurate and timely it is, to be honest with you, Paul. I used to use it a fair bit, but now I just follow along with the department on social media, and I get, of course, releases from them directly on important updates for transportation issues, but I haven't used it in a long time, to be honest. Okay, sir. Uh, we were traveling uh, across on, on the boat, and uh, we were traveling ever since the 31st of March, and on the 6th of April... They, uh, they they said that the ferry was going to be, be crossing, that the uh, the icebreaker was coming back. And the app wasn't updated to 8.35 on April the 6th. And the, uh, when we uh, got the update, we went to the ferry uh, terminal, and we were refused. We never got across. Because of what? I'm sorry? The app wasn't updated. Yeah, but why didn't you get across? Because the app was updated at 8.35 a.m. in the morning. Okay. And uh, when we arrived at the ferry terminal, we said that our reservations uh, were no good because uh, we were supposed to have been there an hour, hour prior. And without access to timely information or updates, that's pretty tough. <laughs> exactly, sir. This is one calling. Sir, we uh, emailed the operations manager. We called him, and uh, he said that he updated it. I have pictures on my phone of the update, and what he said is no comparison, sir. You can go on and you can see the app, and I have all the information. We even cc the the transportation minister, Mr. Lovis, and he hasn't got back to us. Well, I, I think David mentioned to me earlier that he had reached out to uh, the minister's office on another matter, but uh, timing of transportation updates, whether it be ferries or otherwise, I'll put that to him as well. Yes, sir. Uh, it got to be done in time to fashion. You've got families. The child gets kids ready in the morning time. You can't go down to this ferry dock every morning for six and seven days in a row with, with, with small children. No. You rely on this app. Is there also a way to do it just over the telephone, for instance, to call? Because I know uh, for my people... Wife called, my wife called, sir, at 6.22 in the morning, uh -huh. and there was no update. And I was there a couple of times. I, I, I got on one, one morning. The ferry got so far and a stop, and, and uh, what they do, they, uh, 6.30 in the morning, they start selling tickets if the ferry, if the ferry is going. And so I, they, I know they, it's... They know at 6.30 in the morning, so if the app got updated, the, the, the app this morning, sir, got updated at 6.48. That, that would give you lots of time. To, to 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 get to the to the terminal if you if you're in the area if you're outside the area I mean you can't please everybody but but if you're within a half an hour or twenty minutes or so staying in a hotel for six or seven days you're in the area anyhow we travel from the Avalon Peninsula if we were a local yes you know because you got family and you got relatives just going to let you know that the ferry is crossing. Yeah, now, of course, as soon as, the like, I think it was the Henry Larson was up there doing the ice yes, assessment. Yes, sure, it was. I, left, I, left, I monitored Henry Larson the time she left, sir. She left around 3 or 4 o'clock in Cornerbrook. She got into straights at uh, quarter after 5 in the morning. So I was up in my bed watching watching that. And yeah. I was constantly checking the 511 app, but it wasn't updated. 
I'll put it to the minister first opportunity I get because you're as soon as the Larson says okay it's safe for the ferry to travel today from Blanc to Blanc then that should be virtually within seconds or minutes that the information is uploaded for people like yourself who have to make a decision whether or not they're making the way to the wharf. Uh, Paul, yes, appreciate the time. We'll see what I can get from the minister. Thank you very much, sir. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. And, of course, maybe that part of the uh, issue regarding the ice and the fact that there wasn't a ferry run between St. Barbara and Blanc Blanc for a while is I think that spurred on the email regarding the fixed link that I got. I guess that was yesterday or the day before. Uh, let's go to line number two. Tanya, you're on the air. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Hello. Hello to you. Uh, one with Patty Daly. That's me. Okay. Uh, I just want to tell you my story. Uh, I've been back and forth to Clarenville. I, I haven't got very much concern for public health. This I will say. Uh, I've been back and forth to Clarenville Hospital. I'm not going to use no names. And I was turned away, and I had to bring my mother to the hospital in St. John's. When I made my call, I said, this is enough. I'm going to bring her to Clarenville. I'm going to bring her to St. John's. I went to Health Science. I got to tell the truth. Health Science was wonderful. was wonderful with me. Uh, did her due diligence. Did their due diligence and everything. Can't say nothing about uh, health science, health care. But when I got home, I can say a lot about public health. They haven't even come here. Uh, when I called for supplies to do her, her flushes and everything, I had to go to come a chance and get them. Then when... I ran out again. I had to take her back and forth to Clarenville Hospital. Uh, Clarenville kind of looked bad at me because I took her to Claren uh, took her to St. John's first. But I took her to Clarenville several times. She'd only be alive now because she is in because I did take her to Clarenville. So, what specifically is the issue? So you couldn't get information, or you couldn't get supplies, or just help me understand exactly can't what's happening. Can't get supplies. Can't get supplies. Can't get public health to come here and see if I'm doing anything right. Okay. Uh, Clarenville shunned me because I I went there several times. And why were you turned away if you were simply looking for very fundamental things? Because I I. Took her to Clarenville. And, well, I took her to St. John's because I got sick of going to Clarenville. Okay. And then they turned me away. Well, no, they took me back in. Shouldn't say that. Took mom back in. But they made me feel like, why am I back here? Why didn't I go back to Clarenville? Why didn't I go back to St. John's? And I told them, because the ambulance won't take me to St. John's. Right. Okay. And as for the public health, they haven't come here. They come the first day. They never turn back. Never even look back at me again. I had to go to 
come a chance to get supplies, and then I had to contact uh, Clarenville, get my brother to pick up supplies. This public health that we got in Clarenville, if they're only using man for um, uh, 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 cash code just to give them payment, don't even bother because they don't do it. Well, I mean, the public health offices should be very similar in their services in every office, regardless of the location, Clarenville, St. John's, or anywhere. Swift Current, doesn't matter. It should be. should be. Of course it should be. I I agree. I agree. 100%. I agree. And so... I come home here, I flushed... uh, Like, I'm doing her flush tubes and everything. And I... Can't get public health to come here. I can't take her there. And I can't take her there. And they will not give me enough supplies. I got to go to come a chance to get them myself. And my mother is that sick that I can't leave her. I got to get somebody to come here and and look to her. So was it ever different in the past, or is this your first interaction with the system like this? Oh, this is my very first. My mother was a very strong person. Well, I hope you get the help you need, Tanya, and hope the folks who can help you are listening to your plea this morning. Anything else you'd like to say before we say goodbye? Yes, I would like to say, uh, Andrew Fury, please look at your public health system. I'm here on my own. I'm by myself, and I'd like for somebody to give me some support besides my little community. My little community is awesome. Swift Current is awesome. They're bringing me, they're supporting me like you wouldn't believe. But the government, no. No, they're not. And I paid my taxes, and my mother paid her taxes all her life. And I paid my taxes all my life. Well, I'm glad you're getting community support uh, that much. And uh, wish your mother well for me. for the government? I heard that part, yeah. No. What can we do about this public health system? I got a wonderful public, I got a wonderful uh, family practitioner. Glad I got him. Dr. Pierce. That's the only name I'm given. Okay, that's fine. That's the only name I'm given. He is there, and he did order everything. Clarenville, drop the ball. Drop the ball. Well, let's hope they pick it up. I've got to leave it at that, but wish your mother well for me, Tanya. Yes, I will. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take that break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be saying good morning to the Minister of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture. That's Derek Bragg. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Fogo Island, Cape Friels. He's the Minister of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture, Derek Bragg. Minister Bragg, you're on the air. 
Uh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call this morning. Happy to do it. Let's start with moose licenses. We had a caller yesterday calling from Gambo, and his assertion is this year in the allocation of moose licenses, the only group that saw a reduction in licenses were the local hunters, as opposed to out-of-province licenses and licenses afforded to outfitters. Why is that the case, given the fact that why aren't the locals given preference, for instance, because for some it might be uh, sport, but for many it would be part of their food source over the years. So why the locals take the brunt of the reduction? So, Patty, I, I just had a meeting earlier this morning to talk about this and talk to our, our staff here. I'm actually in Corner Brook this morning, which is uh, where all the MOOCs licenses are processed. We actually issue 27,575 licenses for the province each year. Now, that's for this year, I should say. That's been up and down for the last number of years. So we never uh, go above a 15% threshold for non-resident or our outfitters, which would be one and the same, to be honest. Non-residents, outfitters are, are for the best part. There's 170 outfitters in this province, and for the most part, this is their business model. They have never seen an increase or a decrease for the last, I think one of the, one of the people that was there for 15 years, he said they've never seen an increase or de- decrease for 15 years, while residents would see it fluctuate. Some years it's up. Some years is down. So our moose management project is done on science. Basically, we do uh, survey, surveys, and Area 42 was surveyed back in 2020. So they would look at the habitat, and basically what we do in this province right now, we had an abundance of moose back in the early 90s, late 80s. With way too many moose, they were destroying the habitat. So we manage the moose now to two per square kilometer off the Avalon and outside of the, what I'll call the Trans-Canada corridors, because we have some moose management areas that are three kilometers each side of Trans-Canada, basically from Cornerbrook almost to St. John's. We manage those at a lower numbers to reduce the traffic. The Avalon Peninsula is reduced to one moose per square kilometer, and that is because of the volume of traffic in a moose accident. So it's for the safety and plus you still allow for a recreational hunt in that area. So we've seen that fluctuate up and down. We have also have a policy where we will never have more than 50% outfitters over residents because that wouldn't be viable and when we get to that point but we need to tell the outfitters a year in advance so we just did our moose management plan for the next five years so we know where our numbers are going to be okay but does that mean that there's preference given to the outfitters and of course yes not a province license by and large is the same thing but i do know someone locally who does use an outfitter so does that mean we're giving preference to the businesses versus the locals not really because if it fluctuates and we see a, a spike in the population you might have a year or two years where you have twinning where the habitat is really healthy you may see a lot of twinning of moose and you may see a sort of a population explosion chair our grossmore national park comes to mind actually flew over that yesterday saw some places that the moose we saw like 40 moose in one valley yesterday and the valley is completely destroyed of any any reasonable habitat I, I, when the moose move out of it after the, after they give up their, their yarding process i bet they're never going to go back there for years until it grows back we don't need that throughout the province but even in the park from time to time they'll issue more licenses and we also do 370 non-profit licenses and that is for the residents and that's for the for organizations in the province and and there's great uptick on that we get that fully subscribed to each year and you talk about devastation of the habitat, whether it be with animals or what have you, but what about enforcement and some control over man's role here, whether it be with ATVs and Argos and all the rest, because there's parts of the Avalon that I've e- experienced and seen up close and personal that are really beat and very little in the way of monitoring enforcement, any of the rules that are on the books. 
So we're all responsible. As outdoors enthusiasts, every one of us are responsible for being good stewards for the for the environment. And that means where you're gonna you shouldn't tear it up, you shouldn't poach moose, you should treat nature as it is and respect it. And sometimes you're right, we don't see that. If you fly over the southern Avalon protector, you'll see the bogs completely destroyed. It's terrible. And so you tear up the habitat then for the caribou population or moose population. And it's like cabin developments. The more cabin developments we see, is the less habitat that our, that our wildlife get to hang out in. So if you're so seeing balance, right? If you're seeing this destruction, and we know people should know better, but unfortunately we don't always do what we should be doing. So seeing what you've seen, knowing what you know, why aren't we doing more about it. So we do have an enforcement officer, but an under enforcement officer throughout the province, but again, it's a big province. I mean, we're trusting to people like Operation for Sport, for people to call in, to report a porter and that sort of thing. That's the sort of thing we need to do. We all need to police our environment. We need to police what we do. I mean, seriously, if we, if we want moose hunting tomorrow, if you saw someone had three or four moose killed, knocked down, like, you, you're going to report them. That's the right thing to do. You should report them because there's a license. And, and people may say, is my God-given right to be able to hunt a moose. Well, we manage it for a reason. It's a recreational activity that people love. It's a family thing. It's family outing in the fall of the year. And for a lot of the, I think about the Northern Peninsula in particular, a lot of the, the cabins up here in the fall of the year, it, it fills the void from the tourism season. So, you know, there's a lot of money gets spread around when it comes time to do moose hunting. You mentioned caribou. Uh, let's talk about the woodland caribou in Labrador, George River. We spoke to Hollis Yetman yesterday. And this issue is has been long a problem. And there's, mem- there's hunters from Quebec, Quebec Inu, who are there, who are taking animals that are being protected. There's a ban on the hunt. So they continue to do it. No one's doing anything about it. I know that herd is under federal jurisdiction, but the provinces have tons of responsibility for protecting this particular herd. So why are we not doing anything about it? So what we do is a remote area to province in which people would spend two or three days coming up from, from I think it's the North Shore of Quebec, or the, the, I guess, yeah, North Shore of Quebec on the Labrador border. So they follow a big river system, then they come into our province. Where they're so remote, we use airplanes. We use we use helicopter usually to go in and try and patrol the area. But they have to, they have to cover off, off bad weather, darkness in which they can work on there. We've reached out and we've talked to our counterparts in Quebec. I've talked to the Minister of Quebec and to deal with this project. And it's unfortunate, it's really unfortunate, because if, if this continues, and this has continued for years, they will hunt that herd to complete extinction. And that is not where we need to be. You want to be good stewards. like, And, and I saw pictures from last year when we were out. You would see skidoos dragging tarps beyond them. Like so that the chopper couldn't land, so they would have a tarp. So if you got down close, the tarp might blow off around the rollers. So they had people's lives. You can't afford to lose someone's life over this, but we need good partnership with the Quebec, the province of Quebec on this, because we need to have joint enforcement of that area. That's what we need. That's what I've been striving for, but I've had very little success of actually meeting that. So does that mean, or it kind of sounds like, well, there's not much we can do, but of course there's lots we can do, and some of that would start with uh, people who are poaching animals, regardless of their ancestry or their heritage or traditions, is that they would be taking a task in the legal system for poaching, which we know is against the law. 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. Let's move on. 
uh, let's talk rap. I mean, this is going to, the season's off to a strange start, of course. The the boys aren't going for the crab at 220 a pound. We'll know a lot more about the market when some of the crab from other jurisdictions makes it into the United States, then we'll have a better actual grip on what's happening. Right. But the price setting panel, you know, it feels and sounds like a fairly independent or quasi arm's length, but I mean, you have a price coming from the union, a price coming from the processors, and one other member of the panel, they pick one or the other, which of course is not working for either side when it doesn't go their way. Is there a solution to this annual seasonal problem with pricing one species or another, and what can change? So as you recall, Minister Davis, this will be under his department because he discovers the labor. But I can tell you this, like we went through legislative change last year to change the full structure of that panel. So what happens now, there's a representative from the FFAW, there's a representative from the uh, ASP, and also there's an arbitrator who has been appointed to the position by the province, the arbitrator of the board. They make their position, the arbitrator makes a decision based on any number of things. Minister Davis could answer this way better than me, and I wouldn't want to step into, step into his department. But the price came out at, at 220 at $2. a pound, which, as everybody knows, in today's conditions, is not very much money. It's not a lot of money at all. But it's reflective of what the market conditions are. And I'm no market expert, but when you're knowing that crab is selling for $5 a pound when we were in Boston, and when the plants would have went out and paid seven sixty a pound, it doesn't it doesn't take a lot of math to figure out it was buying at a loss and selling at a loss for the last year. So there was a major loss throughout the uh, I, I put out the uh, I guess the industry last year on the on the producer side, and this year is starting off on this price to be. We, I, I was used to say pre-pandemic prices, like we're talking about 1990 prices. And then we have 2020, 2023, you know, expenses. So it's a big change. 220 in 1980 might have been great. 220 today is not a lot of money. When someone would have took out a loan for over $400,000 to buy a 10,000-pound license. I mean, the math on that just doesn't add up. You make $22,000 on it this year, and you're trying to pay off on over $400,000 loan. It's for some people, it's going to be a devastating year. And when we talk about market, and I know this is not on you or the current uh, members of the House of Assembly, but when FPI went by the wayside and the marketing arm went with it, that really we played catch-up uh, in market business for a long time after that. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. No worries. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. As Minister of Fisheries, Forestry, Agriculture... Derek Bragg. You want to take a break? When we come back, you can comment on that or bring up a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Will I take this one here, uh, Dave? So let's go up to Ottawa for a second. One of the stories that uh, I guess began yesterday and the fallout will continue. And this is all about, I guess, in relation to Chinese interference or meddling, what have you, with the 2019 and 2021 election. And we all know some of the different moving parts here with David Johnson and Katie Telford and all the rest of it. But there's one entity that gets some attention, and I'm not so sure even what to make of this story. So some of the pushback about David Johnson, the former governor general appointed by Stephen Harper, being named the special rapporteur, is that he was once a member of the Trudeau Foundation. The Trudeau Foundation was started some 20-odd years ago uh, in recognition or to remember Pierre Elliott Trudeau and established mentorships and fellowships and uh, scholarships. So took a donation, apparently in 2016, 
for some $200,000 from a business person who has some sort of a link or attachment or relationship or something or other with the Chinese government. And so because of that, and the donation has been returned, and because now this particular entity, of which I have no idea if there's any relationship between the Prime Minister and this foundation, but it's become a real flashpoint, and as a result, for the way the politics has been discussed surrounding it, the CEO and the entire board of directors has stepped down. So, again, you know, I know some people will revel in this, and there's people taking great pride in this and great pleasure in this, but what we haven't really understood here is whether or not the Trudeau Foundation has anything to do with the Prime Minister, has anything to do with elections, has anything to do with finding a home for this Chinese business person to infiltrate any layer or level of Canadian politics. It's just another one of these kind of strange stories. Does, is there anything nefarious going on at the Trudeau Foundation? Do they do anything beyond mentorships and fellowships and scholarships? Not that I can see. So again, when we have real, I think, important questions about exactly what's going on with bad actors and their involvement in Canadian politics and especially in Canadian elections, we have to get to the bottom of that. Realistic people just want to know the truth. You know, we just need to know exactly what went on, the who knew what when, what protections were uh, not in place. Should the leaders of one party or another done more to protect the integrity of the election and to make sure that any foreign meddling or interference, involvement, financial or otherwise, is dealt with and protected as best possible? Because you're never going to be able to keep them out, for instance, social media campaigns, necessarily. So, but there goes the leadership currently at the Trudeau Foundation. Is this, is this an actual story? Does this have much more to do with anything beyond the politics of the day? You know, things like Katie Telford's testimony in front of the uh, House Committee on Friday. Important. Because if there's anybody inside the Prime Minister's office who would know about whatever information that was brought forward, whether it be by CSIS or anybody else, that's important for us to understand. Of course it is. And whether or not the issue surrounding former Liberal member Han Dong and his relationship or unofficial back-channeling uh, regarding Michael Spavor, Michael Korvig, and their pending release. We need to know these things. Now, since that's been reported, Dong is now suing the news outlet, I think it was Global, that brought it forward in the first place. But some of these fallouts, they seem as much political as anything else to me. Now, you can't remove politics from the story because the story is political, <laughs> right? No one's so foolish to think so, to think dif to, pardon me, to think differently. But what do you make of that whole issue now with the leadership? You know, in some form, I think people are right to say that as opposed to answering questions and to simply just all resign, that's a funny timing and a sort of a curious look. Now, if you're in a position where you're doing some work at one foundation or with the Modern Hockey Association or whatever, and you're getting browbeat and dragged into some pretty significant mudslinging, of course you're not going to do anything. You're just going to walk away, right? So I'm not sure what to make of this story, but... There's a lot of people reveling in the fact that the Trudeau Foundation now seems to be crippled or may indeed be ineffective in the future because now that it's got this tag, now that it's been brought all the way into the political conversation, who's going to want to do anything with it? You know, Prior to this, I, for starters, I didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't know there was a Trudeau Foundation. And there's people from this province who are actually members of this particular uh, outlet or unit or foundation. So it looks like now... They've lost the entirety of the leadership, the whole, the entire board of directors, and the president have stepped down. Also, inside this, I brought it up off the top of the program, 
and I do think we've got to get down to the brass tacks uh, surrounding the termination of the contract or the dismissal of Ian Timmons at the helm of Memorial University and as the vice chancellor. And I think it extends into what Pauline was talking about earlier. You know, remember, when this current Liberal government was first elected, their very first item of business, Bill Number 1, was about the Independent Appointments Commission. So, again, so what went on, what goes on there now is when there is a job that has to be filled at a Crown Corporation, agency, or board, the nominations are made to the Independent Appointments Commission, and they select, I believe the numbers, they select three names and bring them forward to Cabinet for final decision-making. At that point, which, which is also part of the loose nature of Bill Number 1, is that Cabinet can indeed select one of the candidates put forward, the three put forward by the Commission, or they could just pick somebody else. So the effort there was to try to rein in simply hiring your buddy, supporters of the party. You know, that's long been the concept. The Tories would ever appoint, only ever appoint or hire a Tory supporter. Same thing for the Liberals, and if the NDP ever get in the government, that'll be the same assertion on their front. So there was a reason why they put it forward, but when the, the out available is, they can either select someone off that list or just hire or appoint whoever they like. It kind of takes some of the teeth away from it, but how government goes through the process of hiring or appointing people in really significant positions of authority and power and, and public trust, of course we've got to get it right. So that's the questions being asked by the Faculty Association at MON, is through the due diligence and the vetting of a new president, what did they actually examine, whether it be about any commentary regarding indigenous heritage or ancestry or anything of the like to verify, and whether or not that played a role in Miss Timmons being hired in the first place. Then, of course, people are rightfully pointing out the amount of money we spend on this process at $150,000 was the last price tag here. And yes, we can talk about salaries. Of course we can, because they all play a role. So those two issues, Trudeau Foundation and the whole business regarding Monfa's request for a full investigation to take place here. And this, those voices are only going to get louder. And that's because the Board of Regents will, are refusing to do any interviews. I mean, if the President answers to the board, and that's the governing body at the university, then when these things happen, we should know a bit more about it. And I don't know why, because all this will do is it'll fuel the fire, people's voices will get louder, calls for investigations will become more forceful, so maybe, just maybe, someone, a representative at the Board of Regents or on the Board of Regents can just answer some of our very fundamental questions about what do they know about the vetting process, the hiring, and the ultimate firing or dismissal or termination of contract for Vian Timmons at the university. Because we've got to get it right. Of course we do. So if you want to take on those or anything else, you know what to do uh, right after the newscast. But in conversation with uh, Minister Bragg just said, I don't know how much of a role we want government officials to play in setting things like the price of a pound of snow crab. But certainly, if they're going to have any authority here on approving licenses and anything under the sun, getting the price right is going to be a big deal. Now, over the years, we have very similar rackets about every single species, every single season, and nothing seems to change. So, of course, people will draw lines in the sand. And if you're uh, a union member or a CNL member or a harvester or working on that side of the industry, you want what you want. 
And same thing can be said for the Association for Seafood Producers. There's nothing wrong with either of those stances because people will look out for their best interest. Maybe some compromise, maybe some understanding of the other side's plight is part of it, but not much of it. But how do we do it any differently? I heard from a producer, a guy I know, I'll, I'll say he's a friend of mine, he's an acquaintance, and when I make comment about, you know, to maximize the revenue coming from the raw material, if it was a much more competitive nature to uh, the price set at the wharf, then that would certainly be great for harvesters. And I'm by no means trying to drive the processing sector out of here. Why would I do that? It's such a silly thing to try to accomplish. But, you know, we are not getting it right on the price. And certainly this year at 220, uh, a harvester did send me some math during this show. I haven't had a uh, chance to look at it carefully. But he says just legitimately cannot make it work. If you're going to be able to pay your crew and cover all your input costs at 220, they just can't do it. Now, someone also said, well, you know, if they refuse work, then they don't get some of the additional government programs or supports that are in place. But if I'm a harvester and I can't make any money, I'm not going to fish it for the sake of it. Right. So that one guy, and I appreciate him taking the time to send me and break down some of the numbers, but he just says it is not viable at 220 a pound. Now, the reply I put forward to him is, well, what is it viable at? Is it three dollars or is it 275 or is it 350 haven't heard back to that particular question but hopefully we will let's take a break for the news when we come back we're speaking with you every saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin the cabin party with brian o'connell saturday night starting at 7 p.m on vocm welcome back to the show let us go line number one saying morning to the province's consumer advocate that's dennis brown good morning dennis you're on the air hey good morning patty good morning to you welcome back to the show I'm calling in about uh, an application Newfoundland Power has before the Public Utilities Board requesting that ratepayers pay for a new transformer at Memorial University. And uh, we're opposed to that. We believe Memorial University should pay for that transformer. Okay, what's the numbers? What are we talking about, 1.6 million? 1.6 million. Uh, the numbers are not significant uh, from a uh, ratepayer perspective. It costs uh, somewhere between 60 and 70 million uh, to uh, put a cent on your bill. But it's a principle here because uh, Memorial is its own distributor. Memorial gets electricity from a point from uh, Newfoundland Power, and they distribute electricity throughout both sides of the campus. And that includes the health sciences, the Janeway, uh, the C-Corps building there. It includes the Aqua Arena, the Arts and Culture Center, and so on. So Memorial distributes all the electricity. And uh, then uh, they have all these buildings metered. So Memorial, uh, Newfoundland Power sends a bill to Memorial for the entire electricity uh, costs to Memorial's account, and then Memorial allocates costs based on the metering to all these different buildings. So the ratepayers have nothing to do with it. So if the ratepayers have nothing to do with domestic ratepayers, why are we into that bill? How would it be any different than any other public building? Well, it all depends where the public buildings are and so on. But with Memorial, it's a unique situation because most of the public buildings are not their own distributors. That is unique. So so all the infrastructure the, uh, at Memorial, the distribution, the wiring, is owned by Memorial University. 
unlike uh, building up the street, uh, the, that would be the uh, the wiring going in there would be owned by by all the repairs essentially. So it's a unique situation. So does that mean that Memorial University, inside their own budget envelope, would be responsible for all of the upgrades, ongoing maintenance to all the infrastructure? Well, they do their own, uh, yes, in terms of the distribution. Uh, it's my understanding Newfoundland uh, Memorial University owns all this distribution so and maintain it. So uh, what uh, Newfoundland Power does in this particular instance, uh, they uh, they have a substation which serves Memorial University. One of the transformers from that substation needs replacement, and uh, they're trying to put the bill onto the ratepayers, and it's not to our account. For instance, in your subdivision, if a transformer goes, that transformer probably deals with eight houses. So the electricity might go to eight houses. But Memorial isn't rushing in to contribute to the cost of that. Uh, to residential customers, why are residential customers been charged for anything at Memorial University? That's the point. We've objected to it, and Hydro has objected as well, by the way. And when is the decision pending? Uh, the decision could come any time. We've uh, both stated our case. So uh, in uh, the era in which we live, every cent, every quarter of a cent or eighth of a cent is going to count. So it's important that we pay for what we are responsible for, what is to our account. It's uh, to suggest uh, that uh, repairs should be on the hook for something at Memorial University. Memorial University is off to itself. It has, it's doing its own metering. It's charging off uh, accounts to the Health Sciences, the James Way, uh, and to those other buildings that I listed there, uh, previously. Uh, they get their own... Uh, uh, their own bill from Memorial uh, as part of the cost allocation uh, because they are in Memorial's distribution system. So do you see the difference between that and uh, the residence, uh, the residential area you are in? Oh, yes, of course I do. I'm just giving you a chance to elaborate so that people know what we're talking about. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I'd also like to get your thought. Anything else on that front? Because there's another couple I want to get to. No, that's, uh, that's one particular issue that we're into right now. Okay, and now we haven't arrived at final decisive commissioning, but what are your thoughts on the most recent testing that Hydro has performed on the Labrador Island link? So we had a couple of days of calibration testing, and then most importantly, the high power volume testing at 700 megawatts, and then there was, I think, an, an additional 625 for 12 hours, and it seems to have been successful. No reports of the system being tripped, so I'm not entirely sure where we are or how we got here, but maybe GE Grid Solutions have identified the Gremlin, and fix the bug that's going to allow for maximum flow of energy. But your thoughts on the most recent testing? It's certainly a good result. And uh, the uh, team at Hydro, uh, Rob Collett and uh, Jennifer Williams and others, uh, have uh, stuck with this problem for a long time. They didn't create the problem. These, uh, This particular uh, uh, team at Hydro uh, uh, didn't create Muskrat Falls, but they were stuck with it, and they were stuck with all its problems. So uh, now it seems that uh, they have gotten a result. We will need to see if there's going to be consistency. It's my understanding even today they're still getting 700 megawatts down, and uh, there were some problems who had Soldiers Pond, but uh, I think that some of these are being addressed too. So it's certainly uh, refreshing news. Thank <laughs> you.
and uh, hopeful. That was my next question regarding Soldiers Pound, and the issue there would have been the synchronous condensers. So has that been settled or solved, or do you happen to know the status? Uh, I know that uh, it's working. Uh, Again, we don't know, uh, and uh, indeed Hydro probably doesn't realize if uh, they're going to get full consistency because uh, it's working now. It all seems to be working, and uh, and hopefully uh, we will be able to move forward. Hopefully it's time to move forward. Um, will that be good news for ratepayers? Uh, maybe not, because with commissioning uh, comes the extra costs uh, associated with Muskrat Falls. So uh, that's when uh, the rate mitigation will kick in, and uh, that's when uh, we will be getting more in our bills to pay for Muskrat Falls. And uh, for 20 years, we're going to be in uh, uh, paying off uh, a lot of these initial loans, uh, and for a longer period uh, for others. So uh, uh, for virtually the next 20 years, we're going to be dealing with uh, the cost associated with Muskrat Falls. And even Hydro, what Without saying it out loud, talking about an eighth generating unit at Beta Spare, and that of course means Holywood is going to have to remain in existence, even though that was one of the arguments made for Muskrat was decommissioning that polluting uh, facility. So that adds up to about a billion dollars, 527 for Beta Spare, and of course it's going to cost money for Holywood to keep going. Has there been any further conversation in reaction to things like the Liberty Report that pointed out the potential for prolonged blackouts or rolling brownouts, given the remote and rugged terrain, to get to some of the transmission lines? in particular across the Long Range Mountains. Do we have any idea beyond additional units at uh, unit at Bay to Spare in Holywood about what we're going to do to back up power? Uh, there's going to be a resource and reliability uh, conference uh, among stakeholders at, uh, at the Public Utilities Board uh, on May 1st and 2nd to see exactly where we are with reliability. So we'll be able to speak more to that after we hear from Hydro and uh, indeed Newfoundland Power and industrial customers in reference to how reliable the system is and where we go from here. Because that's an important one. You know, if Liberty Consulting, if I remember correctly, we're saying it could take some 45, maybe 60 days for the full restoration of power if there's a significant event. And we already know that they've had some problem with the towers and the rigging already without us even relying on muskrat. So there's a lot yet to be told there. Uh, just another couple of quick ones before I let you go. We have been told that we've been meeting our contractual obligations with Nova Scotia Power and Amera. They've been scraping up enough assets to satisfy our our commitment to that part of the uh, country. Do we know exactly where that power has been coming from? Because we just kind of get the bare bones of, oh, it looks like we're satisfying the contract. Um, the power, some power we've been getting down from Muskrat Falls for a period of time now. Um, we've also had uh, uh, Holyrood operating. It's uh, it's a winter. Holyrood operates at full capacity during the winter. So where the power is coming from, uh, uh, as you know, that would be uh, very difficult to make that determination. But we do know that uh, Nova Scotia is entitled to about 160 megawatts from Muskrat Falls. And uh, I think they're meeting some of the commitment, but they probably owe some from the downtime. Also, Nova Scotia has the right of refusal on any other power that goes through Nova Scotia, which is problematic because after their 160, if we are able to get other power uh, through their system uh, for uh, parts uh, on the mainland or uh, in the United States, uh, 
they have the right of first refusal. It prevents us from getting contracts with anyone. It was a it was especially dumb idea. So because they have the right of first refusal, it's very difficult to uh, get a contract with uh, an outside party because we don't know if Nova Scotia is going to require it or if they're not. So uh, that's the bare bones of it. Um, interestingly enough, uh, contracts are in very short supply these days. Uh, I think the last contract uh, uh, Hydro-Quebec got was with the state of Vermont some 10 years ago, and that was for, I think, 5 or $0.06 cents a kilowatt. But on the open market, uh, electricity uh, has been as low as 2 3 $0.04 cents a kilowatt. So we're producing at Muskrat Falls at, uh, someone said, $0.32 cents a kilowatt. Hmm, figure out those figures, uh, those numbers. It's not kind <laughs> math. Yeah, so I believe the Vermont contract was 25 years at $0.05, cents, if I recall. Yeah, I think, I, think you're, I think you're right. Yeah, but uh, uh, Hydro-Quebec, with all its offices and the wherewithal, and they even have offices in, uh, in New York City, um, and they sell a fair amount of power uh, into, uh, into the United States, uh, they have no certain contract. They have to sell on the open market, which has ramifications, of course, for um, the upper Churchill. And uh, everyone's saying, you know, we will get market rates. Well, market rates right now are just two and three cents, and we will be required to pay transmission costs uh, uh, for using anyone else's lines in Canada. And in the United States, uh, uh, there's one cost for transmission. But in Canada, we go through uh, Nova Scotia and Quebec and and um, um, New Brunswick. We have to pay separate transmission charges to all these jurisdictions. In the United States, they have a figure. There's only one transmission charge on the system. And for Hydro-Quebec, they had their hopes for a contract in the state of Maine, dashed with the public referendum concerns about the transmission line construction. Uh, the UARB, first right of refusal, the UARB is the regulator like our PUB in Nova Scotia. Yes. Not only first right of refusal, but first right of approval, because they also say that any excess power, they have the first crack at it, and that would be at market rates, which we don't know if that means market rates like the spec market, or it means market rates, what it, uh, what it costs to generate other sources of power in Nova Scotia. So no one even knows exactly why. What that means. Uh, I think it means market rates. I think they take a look at the market and see if they can get it cheaper somewhere else, um, uh, first and foremost. So, uh, what it means is that the Nova Scotia on the excess power to which they are entitled under subsequent agreements that Nalcor did uh, with Nova Scotia is uh, Nova Scotia gets a look and see uh, first and foremost and uh, that's not to our advantage. That's to our disadvantage. But it was a uh, uh, another, it was an add-on. Uh, you might remember at the time the UARB didn't give its support to the project in Nova Scotia. And of course, without Nova Scotia, uh, there would be no maritime link, uh, therefore there would be no money from the federal government, and therefore no guarantee. So when the UARB played that card, uh, the Nelcor crowd offered Nova Scotia more the right of first refusal, and it really has endangered uh, us being able to get a contract if contracts come in vogue anymore, but also requiring that uh, Nova Scotia is going to get the absolute lowest cost uh, power, um, and uh, we 
can't even contract with them on it. Yeah, I wonder if any of the water on those particular beans changed with if there's ever such a thing as the Atlantic Loop comes to bear. You know, our omission in the federal budget calling it a maritime loop, and then Christopher Freeland says, no, this province is in. I wonder how that interacts with the that last uh, UARB ruling. Uh, very last one, Dennis, just popped yeah, my head. Although I don't, uh, I think it's uh, an Atlantic Loop. I, I've never paid too much attention to that. They need yeah, has uh, to be. our power as much as uh, they need Quebec's and uh, Newfoundland and Quebec uh, in the future are really uh, going to have to work together. That that seems to be, uh, and of course the um, the commissioner in the Muskrat Falls report uh, suggested that we will have in the future to uh, to work with uh, Hydro Quebec and and uh, CFL Co and uh, Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro. We'll have to work together and uh, we'll have to seek compromises. So we've been fighting for a long time, and where has that gotten us? Well, uh, geographically speaking, I don't think we have a choice but to work with them, hydro, minerals, and otherwise. Last one. So you put forward your position about the provincial government paying for the installation of charging stations. And in 2020, there was $2.2 million set aside for those 14 charging stations, and work continues. Now, the numbers are in from last year. Uh, electric vehicles, we saw a 125% increase. Hybrids, a 53% increase. It's still pretty low numbers. But at what point, uh, Dennis, would the threshold be satisfied where you think the public should be paying for charging stations? Is it 25% of ownership or 50 or do you have a target? Uh, nothing. The uh, the ratepayers <laughs> have no have no say in those charging stations. Those charging stations are between uh, the electric uh, vehicle operators and the utility. Uh, someone who doesn't have an electric vehicle or is not involved in any of this, uh, uh, we should pay nothing for that. Uh, we've taken that position, and it seems now that the PUB have accepted that position. And by the way, when you look at the uh, the numbers and I've just, some of them just came in uh, for all the charging stations that are on the go out there now um, the utilities seem to have made ten thousand dollars so it's not lucrative it's no business case for the utilities to put chargers in and it's certainly uh, no right to put it on the ratepayers bill because we're not responsible for it but uh, uh, there's no business case for us to take up the slack in in any way because there's no money to be made on it right I, now i appreciate your time story dennis thank okay. you all the best. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks, bye. This is uh, consumer advocate, Dennis Brown. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking curling with the executive director of the NL Curling Association. That's Harold Walters. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the executive director at the NL Curling Association. That's Harold Walters. Good morning, Harold. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent this morning. Thanks for asking. How about you? Not bad. Not bad at all. When we talk curling here in the province, of course, the lion's share of the focus goes to Team Guzhu. And for all the obvious reasons, five briars, world champion, gold medalist, and all the rest. But looking beyond Guzhu and maybe some of the other big names, the Greg Smiths and others of the world, and Stacy and her team, what's the, what's the status of the growth of the game of curling beyond the big marquee names? Uh, <clears throat> it's there. It just depends on what type of commitment these guys are willing to willing to put out. And, and it. As you know from from Brad, it takes an awful lot to be at the highest levels of curling. Uh, we, we've got some teams that uh, th- there's some potential there, but again, it's it's up to what they're willing to commit. And then add into the the Tipple brothers and Stacy. I couldn't remember her last name, but I top of my head, but Stacy Carter. So we've got some up and comers that look like they have a very bright future. But even on the recreational side. 
you know, what does the loss of the sheets at Ballyhaley mean? I know many of the members have already moved over to the Remax Centre and the St. John's Curling Club, but losing yet another sheet can't be great news. No, uh, this city and, and the basically the Eastern Zone in general can certainly use another club. Um, I, I know speaking from the Remax Centre, which is where, where I also manage, we can handle the Bally Haley influx. Uh, there, there's room. We we still haven't recovered from COVID, basically, so we can handle 60 to 80 new members, and that will just put us back to pre-COVID times. We we actually thought we were going to lose Stephenville, but apparently they seem to be coming back in operation, which is good news. Um, some building in Gander and Cornerbrook with some junior programs. So there's there's a little brightness on the horizon for curling for sure. So what do we do on the cur on the curling side? Like we spoke with uh, Mr. Hillier at the Golf Association yesterday, talking about the junior programs and how that's you're going to grow the game and keep the population of uh, participants up. You know, I've long been surprised. Like I remember after Guju won the gold medal, we thought that curling was going to take off in wicked fashion here in this province. About a month later, one of the curling clubs in Central closed. So how do we make sure the juniors come behind? They don't necessarily have to be the next Guju, but they have to be the next member of the curling club. Yeah, and, and it takes. Unfortunately, curling is all volunteer driven. There's there's a couple of clubs that have some paid staff, but really we don't have. We've got Sport NL that helps us out a little bit, but there's really it's all volunteer driven. And unless we get some really good volunteers in place, the future, it, that's what it takes. It takes some volunteers. So when you talk about junior programs, do, are we basically leaving it up to the interest of the family or the child that says, you know, I'd like to give curling a shot? I know there's some programs where I've seen them go into the schools, but what else are we doing to get the next junior on the ice? We've, I know, I know at the Remax Center we've got some great programs that, you know, we've we've got probably about 150 kids in our program. Okay. So there's there's lots of potential there, province wide. Again, they, they've started some programs. They're, they're trying. I'd, I'd love to see a club in Clarenville. I really, really would. I think that would do wonders for for the province. It's a little centralized location that could could get some curlers going. It, it, the curlers are out there. You just got to find them. Uh, we haven't really we haven't really promoted it as much as we should because again we as an association we try to promote but where are you going to go outside of St. John's if you don't have a have a program already in place so again up up until up until this year now Gander is starting with a junior program Cornerbrook starting with a junior program so now at least there's somewhere to go yeah, one so in Clarenville. Promote, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Clarenville would be awesome. I've said that for years. I really don't understand why Clarenville don't have a curling club, and I'd love to see one in Clarenville. Yeah, and you know, maybe one in Paradise or CBS or somewhere, one of these growth communities. Because if you had one down the road, it might be a little bit more attractive than trekking into the Remax Center, for instance. And the Remax Center is a great facility, but you know what I mean. Uh, last yeah, one. On, the, on that point, like we have at the Remax Center, for instance, 20% of our membership is from the out, outlying areas, Paradise, CBS, Mount Pearl, that area. But of that 20%, most of them are youth curlers. So if we had something in the west end of St. John's uh, and, and we started to promote youth curling, I really think we could do wonders with that out there. Sounds good. Very last one, and this is uh, big picture stuff. 
You know, it's long been said that the toughest curling tournament to win in the world on the men's side is the Briar and the women's side is the Scotties. And, you know, people have this built-in disappointment when Guzhu and the boys didn't polish it off at the Worlds against Scotland. I mean, Scotland were extremely tough and uh, quite a clinical dismantling. But the strength of Canadian curling, it just feels like the rest of the world is caught up. Not just one or two rinks or one or two countries. It feels like the vast majority of the curling uh, nations, they've really caught us very quickly, haven't they? They have, but then again, they haven't. If you look back at the records over the past 10, 15, 20 years of world curling, we haven't always been top of the podium. The world has always been good. We've caught up and started to dominate for a little while, and now the world is back. I think we're still very good, but everybody else has gotten good too. Curling's just that kind of game that's. And young, young Moet team is there. They didn't miss very much all week. They were the best team at the Worlds all week, and they ended up winning. So, Yeah, you know. they sure looked at No shame in losing to Scotland in curling. You know, on the no, women's side, the Swiss have won eight of the last 12. Up until Scotland here, Adine and the Swedes had won four straight. But we're right there all the time. And after you come through what is absolutely going to be a difficult task to win the Scotties or the Briar, it's been a long season. Add in some of the pro tours, and there's a reason why. The, the rest of the world looks as good as they look. And we're always in the conversation and in the hunt for the podiums and championships. Uh, good to have you on this morning, Harold. Anything else you'd like to say? All right. No problem. Uh, on, the world, on, on the Canadian world stage, we just need to do things a little differently. We're, we're still very provincially driven to how we select our teams to go to the Scotties and the Briar, whereas other countries are not. They select from the whole country, and we're still – stuck in this mindset that we have to be four players from representing our province and to go outside that is, it's really unheard of so we're having some meetings in may in toronto and we're hoping to finally open up that doorway a little bit whereas you can select some players you know for instance brad he needed someone that was at the very highest level and and he had to go outside this province to find someone with that type of commitment so other teams need to do that in, and need to be able to do that in Canada if we're going to stay on the world stage. And the residency rule has changed, too. So uh, unless uh, when Guzhu, if he doesn't return as Team Canada, which has a loophole in the residency rule, you can't have Walker and Herndon on the team. You're going to need at least three from your home province and one out of province for the national competition, which is something that's looming for Brad and others around the, the country. It is, and that's something we're really trying to work on getting changed but to try to get every province in canada aligned to that it's a little difficult so like herding cats appreciate the time harold all right no problem thanks patty all the best you too bye-bye harold walters with the curling association time for the news when we come back we'll speak with you about what that is up to you you're busy but you'll never be uninformed get up to date on the way home the drive on your vocm Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Ryan, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you making out, bud? Not too bad, I suppose. How about, bad, I suppose. How about you? Oh, best time, man, especially on this beautiful sunny morning. Can't wait to get out in it. Oh, my God, is it ever. So i got to say first, I'm a first-timer and long-timer. And uh, the reason I'm calling a bit this morning was I had to make a quick trip out to Bay this morning, and I noticed some gentleman uh, running westbound by uh, Paddy's Pond. And he had a hydration platter, hydration platter on his back, and he had a motorhome behind him with uh, emergency flashers on, and a couple other vehicles. So uh, as I was coming back in town again, uh, I noticed that he was 
just passed a foxtrap turnoff. And I was wondering, do you know what that's about, or does anyone on the air know what he's running for, for what cause or whatnot? I don't know. It's the first I heard of it, to be honest with you, because we have these types of runs happen fairly frequently. Some make the news, some don't. But guarantee is someone listening to the program must know who that person is oh. and what they're running for. So hopefully they call and let me know. For sure, because like it's a beautiful day for it, but you definitely got to be physically fit, and it's definitely a challenge for whatever he's doing, and hopefully he gets some recognition for it. Absolutely. Like, and I mean, curiously, uh, I know this is not maybe a marathon for of hope, but Terry yeah. Fox run began today uh, in uh, 1980 on April the 12th, so it's all quite interesting. So if anybody knows who this particular particular runner is, what they're doing, and what issue or uh, awareness campaign they have ongoing, we're happy to talk about it here on the show. That'd be great. And also, Patty, uh, you signed a mug for me and my son, Rory. And got to say, he absolutely loves it. <laughs> I didn't know that was you, Ryan. Yeah, that was fun. And I appreciate you sending along the picture of little Rory and his mug. <laughs> it was perfect. Yeah, and he still eats Cheerios every morning out of it. And we won't wash it in the dishwasher so the Sharpie don't get erased. <laughs> I think that's great, man. Really appreciate the call this morning as a longtime listener, first-time caller. And I'm glad you got the mugs. Perfect. Thanks, bud. Have a good day. You too, Ryan. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was some sweet. So this particular fellow, and I don't even know how it all started. Oh, I think it was someone called and said that they had a mug uh, and sold it for, I think it was $40. And then consequently, there was a bunch of people saying, can we get a mug? Sure, why not? And so including Rory, Ryan's son, and he's just a little tyke. Like, I mean, he's in a high chair. Uh, eating his Cheerios out of his mug. And the picture that Ryan sent along was especially cute. And now back to Ryan's call. If you do know anything about that particular runner on the highway, was running westbound uh, around Paddy's Pond, if you know what's going on, you can fill us in, and we can consequently fill in the rest of the listening public. Very quickly, based on the conversation we had on uh, curling, this is a note from Lee on Twitter. Say, one person making a strong push in increasing young women in the local curling program is Leslie Ann Walsh. She started Girls on the Rock at Ballyhaley this year and has moved to the Remax Center next year. She is doing excellent work, as per Lee. So that's the good news. And, you know, again, like I said to uh, Harold when we talked a little curling prior to the newscast, when Guju won the gold medal, Team Guju, pardon me, won the gold medal back in 2006 in Turin, Italy, I had every thought that said curling is now going to take off like never before you know because it took a while for brad to translate the uh, team goes you pardon me to translate a gold medal into some success at the briar and now of course with five-time champ is just extraordinary what he's accomplishing they are accomplishing on the national front and yes on the international front but very shortly after that gold medal was won there was a, a curling club in central closed its doors so I'm really still a little bit surprised that we haven't seen curling take off, even just a little bit more in the province, given the successes of the Team Gujus of the world and the Brad Smiths and, and uh, Stacey Curtis and Leslie Ann Walsh, what she's doing for Girls on the Rock and all the rest of it, because we are getting to watch participants from our province absolutely excel. You know, not just with a, a shot at winning a couple of championships, but doing it consistently. I mean, was it five out of the last six or five out of the last seven Briars have gone to Team Guju? Different editions of Team Guju, but nonetheless, I mean, they're world beaters, and we just haven't really seen that next surge uh, in the ranks of curling. Now, Harold's 
says that we're doing quite well and there's lots of good junior programs and possibly the need or the potential for a curling club out in Clarenville would be a nice uh, centralized spoke or hub for curlers in and around that community. Same thing with some of the big centers here. Like he did say, some 20% of his members at the REMAX Center, the St. John's Curling Club, come from the communities very close by, Mount Pearl, Paradise, Conception Bay South, and otherwise. You just wonder whether or not that 20% contingent might be 40 if there was a curling sheets very much close by where they live, like, for instance, in the community of Paradise, CBS, with the populations growing exponentially, as we know, in those communities. Uh, let's see. Let's check in on the Twitter. Appreciate Lee filling us in about the work of Leslie Ann Walsh. Da, 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 da. Uh, so that's the Twitter feed. We're taking your emails. It's opalanofiosim.com. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you of the topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Ron, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. Yeah, good morning. Morning. Um, just wanted to touch on the, the cost of food a little bit. Okay. And uh, I got kind of a surprise the other day at the supermarket. Um, like, I buy salads, like, you know, occasionally, and that when I'm there. And usually, when I buy my groceries, like most people, you know, you go and you buy whether it's a half dozen items or 50 or whatever it is. But this particular day, a few days ago, I just bought one salad. That's the only thing I bought in the supermarket. Went down, it was like six bucks or whatever it was. And um, when the cashier passed me back the money, I was expecting to get like the exact change back for out of a 20 kind of thing. And then, then I got nickels and dimes. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, whatever. And I said, is there tax on this? The boy said, oh, yeah, he said, whatever. So I took it and looked at the receipt. And I didn't realize, like, there was, like, I know with the sugar tax got, like, all the rage. Everybody, you know, got upset and everything. That. And um, I'm thinking, geez, I'm eating healthy here. Like, there's little chopped up olives in it and lettuce and tomato and everything like that. And I never realized before I was paying tax on salad. Yeah. Like a healthy choice kind of thing, right? Yeah, and it's not necessarily about the healthy choice or not. What goes on there is if you bought a head of lettuce, a jar of olives, and whatever else, then you don't pay tax on those. But when the grocery store prepares the food... So they cook the wings or they make the salad or they make the sandwich, then it's a uh, good that they do indeed apply tax to. So that's the difference there. If you just buy all the raw materials to make your own salad, no tax on those items. But when they do it for you, it's taxable. Oh, okay. I don't know what the rationale was behind it. All I could picture in my mind was the sugar tax. Kind of, like, I don't buy pop like, or anything. Like, I buy, like, water mostly in place of bat water. Like, I do drink tap water, but sometimes I have bat water on hand as well. And, um, yeah, I was thinking, like, you know, with the, I'm good with the environmental fees and that, but I was thinking after with the sugar tax, I was wondering if, if there was a play on this that, okay, well, they're using the sugar tax for this, where are they going to spend it if they could alleviate tax on know, like water or someone making a healthier choice like a salad could they just take it off the salad i know it's pretty complicated the government can't run the grocery store but you know i guess this really threw me off i never really thought about it before like a healthy choice as opposed to a bottle of uh, soft drink i just think i didn't think i'd pay tax for it yeah, and that that's the way that they uh, arrive at what can or cannot be taxed inside the walls of a grocery store. But yeah. the interesting point inside of all this is, is uh, also, so we are applying taxes to things that we've deemed to be unhealthy. People refer to them as the sin tax, whether it be to alcohol products or tobacco products yeah. or to sugary drinks. You know, it all sounds fair enough to want to encourage people away from things that we know and are proven to be unhealthy, but there's no 
additional incentive to turn your attention to. Like, for instance, people who drink the full bore, full bore Pepsi, uh, Pepsi, they're probably still drinking it. Now, how much money the government is making, we don't really know. But the, the issue for so many others is how can we make the better option, the healthier option, more affordable, more accessible to more and more people across the country? No one's really come up with a very good idea on that one. Yeah, yeah. Maybe if they sort of pro- programmed it out, like, okay, the tax is going on the unhealthy. They say they're going to do it with chocolate bars next or something like that. Well, okay, we're going to take the tax off the prepared salad or, you know, or the water kind of thing, right? You know, or something like that. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. You know. Well, absolutely. Um, the And the whole issue with sugar tax, and remember, the government, we don't know if it's going to actually have any appreciable impact on people's purchasing uh, habits, but they guesstimated that they would raise about $9 million annually. They said that they were going to create new programs to funnel that money into. That didn't happen. It simply went to Kids Eat Smart and other already standing programs and yeah. pediatric health uh, program that's already in place. But yeah. anyway, uh, anything else you want to say this morning, Ron? Yes, one other thing. Uh, sure. I got a, My granddaughter is trying to get home from Labrador for a Easter break. She's up there teaching, and uh, I just my heart goes out to all the people with that ice up there. Man, I didn't realize it hit, hit me because like, I got someone vested in getting home. She's driven over a thousand kilometers this past weekend back and forth to the ferry because you got to be on site kind of thing, right? And uh, she said the other day, she just threw the towel in the other day, said, that's it. I've driven over a thousand kilometers back and forth, like multiple trips. And uh, the other day took the cake. She was in the line for five hours, drove like, you know, almost 200 kilometers to get there, in line for five hours. He said, okay, we're boarding, let's go. And then they said, okay, never mind, we're not going now kind of thing. We just, my heart goes out to the people up there, man, I tell you, is, uh, yeah. We had a call on that exact issue this morning. He yeah. missed the boat because the application, the 511, wasn't updated in, hi- in time for him to get to the ferry this morning. So, yeah, yeah. we've yeah, looked her, for... Her, her neighbor up there was trying to get home for uh, his wedding. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's it for me for this morning. Thanks so much for your time and letting me speak there. No problem, Ron. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, and of course, with all the talk about groceries and grocery store executives being called to parliamentary committees and all the rest of it, and yes, the confidence agreement between the Liberals and the NDP saw this one additional measure taken in the federal budget, which is basically just another GST bump check like uh, people who are eligible saw last year. They call it a grocery rebate. And I know the point, and more money in people's pockets is, uh, makes it easier for them to access and to afford different things, pay different bills, including going to the grocery store. But anything, uh, anyway, the affordability issue, I don't know if it's going away anytime soon, but there is a school of thought about how you incentivize better choices, like, for instance, on the sugar. The sugar issue, they are putting it on to the consumer to determine whether or not they are going to continue buying the the Pepsi or the fully loaded stuff versus the light option or the diet option or other options for in the juice aisle or the pop aisle. In other jurisdictions where it has worked somewhat is that they put the onus on the manufacturers and distributors to reduce the sugar content. So when, in, when they did, they weren't met with what we'll call fines or levies or additional taxes. So consequently, even if you didn't change your behavior for what you bought and drank, you did indeed consume less sugar in this case. And so consequently, government policy maybe did have a positive impact on people's overall health. So there's two different ways to do it. Put the onus on me to make better choices, which I should, or put the onus on the industry to produce the amount of sugar in the product period, which is why I think is what they did in the UK versus what we've done here. And the grocery rebate business, 
Look, it's probably going to help folks who get the check. Of course it is. But it doesn't do anything to deal with the root cause issues. Uh, and because some of that is hijacked by straight-up politics and po- politicians who are trying to get their pound of flesh and trying to grab a headline with a sound uh, soundbite from a presser or whatever the case may be. Because until we figure out exactly what all the causes are to the price of food and inflation, then we're just going to go, we're going to be running around in circles well, like chicken with their heads cut off and getting nowhere fast. So are there implications with government spending? Absolutely. Are there implications with how the, uh, the Bank of Canada handled interest rates throughout the pandemic? For sure. Are there implications with floods and droughts in the southern United States? 100%. Are there issues with uh, interruption from uh, whether it be microchips or food supply coming from Europe and specifically in Ukraine? Absolutely. So, But we don't get that honest, well-rounded conversation often enough from politicians, so we just play the same old game and sing the same old tune and get no further ahead. Now, there was uh, the most recent call around asking about the runner that he saw on the highway. And now we have some information for you. It's called Nappy's Run. It's a relay across Canada in honor of murdered and missing indigenous people and to honor Mother Earth, so says this particular emailer. So uh, began this morning at 6 a.m. at the Terry Fox Memorial, as a matter of fact, and the runners are going to try to make their way all the way to Victoria, B.C. So it's called Nappy's Run, and this morning was a sunrise pipe ceremony at the Terry Fox Memorial at the mile, the mile zero marker, I think is what they call it. So appreciate the listener sending along that particular information. Uh, now we're talking about the backup uh, power for when and if there's issues regarding Muskrat Falls or otherwise. And one listener says that the obvious go-to mechanism here to alleviate that concern is with hydrogen-fired generation. So now that there's more talk about hydrogen and its potential application, not only for uh, international markets like Germany, for instance, with World Energy GH2, but what a domestic market might look like. I don't know anything, or not very much anyway, about the hydrogen-fired generators. So... If that's part of the solution, because we, you know, we remember when we bought that 100 megawatt generator. I don't know if it was a, a combined twin cycle generator or whatever the case would be. Lots of uh, worry about how much we spent on it. Remember that conversation? But there is going to have to be some attention to back up. If there is ever going to be a time in the province's history where Holyrood gets decommissioned, then of course there's going to have to be backup. And what form that comes in, I'm not entirely sure, but with the justifications between uh, working around the province of Quebec who are decommissioning Holyrood, which were the two main driving forces, in addition to the thought that for ever and a day, the province was hoping to generate more electricity on the Churchill River to develop Muskrat Falls or to develop Gull Island, but unfortunately, the approach taken and the business model that was constructed certainly didn't satisfy those overarching needs. So if we were going to be told that it's not having to deal with Quebec, which we still have to, and or decommissioned Holy Road, which we haven't, and doesn't, there doesn't seem to be an end in sight, something's got to give. All right, uh, last check there. Thanks to the listeners who chime in on the Twitter box. Also, email. It's openline.vocm.com. Uh, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. That means all the callers, listeners, emailers, and tweeters, you are all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of their producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.